Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, November 16th, 843-661-0937. How can you do this for a living and not be excited this morning? <laughs> That's right. You the like only it. people more excited than yours truly are the employees at CNN. <laughs> you have a little pep in your step, I know. I've got a lot of pep in my step. We're going to have fun for at least two years, <laughs> maybe six years. But, but the only people more excited than yours truly, once again are the Tennessee Volunteer fans um, and mm. the CNN employees. They have job security for at least two years. CNN had a memo about to be sent out. They were about to mash the button and inform these 20,000 employees that their services were no longer needed at the cable news network, the most trusted name in news. But they didn't mash the button because Cheeto Jesus is back. <laughs> is back. <laughs> He's back in um and running bigger and better and uh, you know, some say better than ever. We'll we uh we shall see, but no surprise. Um someone texted me last night about 5 minutes before he made the announcement and said so Trump's back in. I said, "Man, he's got to do something with this 150 million dollars he's got in this political action committee that he's disqualified from spending on anybody." But well, he, he could have helped other candidates, but we know Trump. Trump isn't much on helping other candidates, right? I mean, let's accept that. I mean, Trump will endorse, but you ain't getting his money. I mean, you're just not. You're just not. If Donald Trump has 150, somewhere north of 140 million, shy of 200 million. I mean, there's a little discrepancy as to exactly how much he has available in these political action committees. Let's say 150 million. I mean, just for argument's sake, do you think Donald Trump is going to spend that 150 million helping other people get elected? <laughs> Or helping himself. Not when get he has other elected. plans for that yeah, money. You better believe it. So, um, yeah. Um, if, if you can't be excited this morning about conservative talk radio, um, then they're just find something else to do. Uh, find something else to do. I, I do want to quickly say that I have reviewed game film of the Tennessee Volunteers, and I'm deciding whether or not my hamstring is going to keep me from tailgating. <laughs> oh. <laughs> tailgating Saturday morning. Oh. Um, you know, Rev, there, there are a lot of uh, the NFL is matchups. But the NFL is a dozen matchups a game. And the reason Tom Brady's the best has ever been, Brady identifies these 12 mismatches, the, the matchup that he likes, and he never misses. Now, now the, the, average right. quarterback, the average quarterback misses about, you know, he gets about half right and the other half he misses. But Brady had this keen, and I say had, um, he probably still to some degree has it, but he's got some other things kicking in his life um, that I think have sidetracked him and consumed him. And, um, and bothered him more than he leads on. But but when Brady saw a safety, when Brady saw a Tampa 2 coverage and the safety had wide side and he's got his elite receiver on that side and Brady and the, the corners play in bump coverage, I mean, that's press coverage, that's real tight man, and Brady says, my guy gets by your guy, ain't no way your safety can stay with him. Brady sees that at the line of scrimmage. Um, all the NFL quarterbacks see that sometimes. Brady sees that every single time. And he makes you pay. So, so when I see Tennessee on film, not on film, but I watch some of their games and some of the, um, th there's a couple of websites, excuse me, a couple of YouTube channels out there that analyze these games a little better, um, a little better than most, but it's a bad matchup. I mean, it's a good football team, but it's a bad matchup. They stretch the field. They run a lot of seam routes. The Gamecocks aren't very athletic at safety. When I say athletic, um, they're better athletes than I am. <laughs> But they're not a good enough athlete to keep up some of the uh, some of the Tennessee wide receivers. So if I'm the Gamecocks, you know what I do, Rev? Hmm. I come up with a gimmicky offense. 
Okay. I mean, the last two years have been Sounds kind good. of gimmicky offense anyway. I mean, <laughs> is a gimmicky offense better than no offense? We don't know. Let's try. Let's try because we know our best chance to score against good teams has been, you ready, the block punt of the fake field goal. And I think if you go into a game believing that you can outscore the other team by blocking field goals and faking punts, um, it's probably time to decide a different avenue to travel when it comes to, to offensive football. So I think the Gamecocks did a couple of some uh, gimmicky offense, a little bit like they did in the bowl game against North Carolina. Remember the mayonnaise bowl? Um, yeah. they, they they had DeCarry and Jordan at kind of a wildcat, and it caught, because he's a former it high worked. school quarterback, he could throw it good enough, and he caught some of the um, – some of the North Carolina defensive schemes off guard. I think that's what you got to do. I think this is a much worse matchup. I mean, it's a night in Williams Rice. That, that, that you know that gives you a little bit of reason to be yeah, excited. That's good. Um, that's that's about the only good thing. The good mm-hmm. stops there. Not game at Williams Rice. Let's <laughs> right. leave it there. Okay. Right. Have a good time tailgating. Then then the game starts. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a tougher matchup for South Carolina than Florida or or Clemson. Despite being at the swamp, despite being in Death Valley. Um, Clemson nor Florida are that explosive on offense. I mean, Tennessee is as explosive on offense as any team I've seen in a long, long time. And it doesn't look like to me um, it's just the way the ball has bounced this year. I mean, it looks to me like they've got a real sound offensive scheme. Um, Josh Heupel was a former, I think it was a Heisman Trophy runner-up, if I'm not mistaken, when he was quarterback at, at Oklahoma. Uh, went to Central Florida, uh, built a program there. Um, the Tennessee Volunteers fired Phil Fulmer. Imagine a coach getting fired as AD. Huh? Uh, anyway, uh, Fulmer gets fired. They hire a guy named Danny White from Central Florida. He talks Josh Heupel into coming to, to Tennessee, and he's implemented a very, very good offensive game plan, and it creates a lot of mismatches. They stretch the field. Once again, a lot of pressure on safeties. Um, you don't like me getting the weed, so I'll stop right there. But um, there, there's one reason to be encouraged. You ready? It's going to be a beautiful football-like day in Williams-Brice. you have the weather? All- yeah, but it's I think the high is fifty two or three. Okay, the low five thirty five or six. Uh, we're um, we're steaming oysters as we always do the last home game. So um, yeah, we'll we'll have a big time and uh, and then the game will start and it probably won't be so much fun after that. But but anyway, um, we can talk Trump. We can talk uh, politics. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Um, we'll we'll get down to the nitty gritty of Clemson uh, Friday when Jason Priester. Hey, I don't want to say this. Um, the show next Wednesday, one week from today, will be at Rivals Store Divided. So exactly one week from right now, we'll be broadcasting live at Rivals Store Divided with our good friend and sidekick for a day. Um, Alan Smothers, the bad boy of sports radio, will be with us. Um, the ESPN show they do, the press box, um, will kind of be um, simulcasting, or uh, it'll be a hybrid. I think we call it good morning. No, what do we call wake it? Wake up press wake box. Wake up press box. There was a time we got a good morning press box, but That's now right. it's it's wake up press box. And um, but he'll be there. We'll be there. Um, Jason Priester of um of all Clemson will be there. I think Chris Clark will be there. Talked to Chris a little bit yesterday. I'll get back with him um today. Um, some of the uh, some of the featured Phil guests Kornblut. on um yeah Phil Cornblute will be there. Um, help me here. Uh, bad boy has a guy on Thursday. Bob, Bob Schuster. Schuster. Yeah, Bob Schuster Bobby will Schu. be there. Bobby's a um an old hand from the PD and a big Clemson guy. Uh, actually works at Clemson. I think Bobby works for a lot of people other than Clemson. I think Bobby works for a pay him. I mean, I can relate to that. You know, <laughs> sure. Um, he's done games at South Carolina. I think, I think he's a Gamecock graduate, but but works at Clemson. That makes him a traitor. Um, but <laughs> and I think Bad Boy may refer to him as Benedict Tom yeah. from time to time. But anyway, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, we'll be we'll be talking about the game. We'll have a lot of fun discussing the game, uh, the pageantry of the game, 
Um, I saw somebody put on Facebook, a good friend of ours and a listener to the show, um, kind of chastising the Gamecocks for being convinced this is a rival. This is a rivalry. I mean, we've not held up our end of the bargain, but don't forget, guys, Auburn beat Alabama 10 consecutive years. I mean, the pre-Nick Saban era. I mean, imagine that. Imagine Alabama faithful having to go a decade without beating Auburn. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, Ohio State beat Michigan about nine or ten years um, th- there are a lot of ancillaries that go into why one team gets the best of the other team uh, for that many years. And you, I mean, you can't explain it until you try to dig in a little bit. It a little bit, you find out. Okay, hired a bad coach, had a transitioning period. I'll take it. South Carolina, one coach stayed two years too long. The other coach just simply did not work out. Uh, they hired a new coach. It takes a couple of three years to kind of get your program. And there's been stability at Clemson. That there's been a lot of stability at Tiger Town. I do want to talk about this next Wednesday, and then I'll shut up and go to politics. You ready? Mm -hmm. Um, Jeff Scott got fired from South Florida. Tony Elliott's having issues at Virginia. Chad Morris got fired at Arkansas. Britt Venables is having issues at Oklahoma. It's too early on Venables. It's too early on um, Tony Elliott. It's not too early on Scott. He failed. I mean, he's not. I mean, apparently, he's just not a good head coach. Um, Chad Morris, just apparently not a good head coach. Very good assistant coaches. Is the Dabo coaching tree? I mean, what's up with that? You see where I'm headed? Oh. I mean, the Saban coaching tree has certain. Uh, I don't think Spurrier ever had a coaching tree because he's too, well, a little bit like Trump. I mean, he's too about it, about himself <laughs> and not in the mood to really worry about other people and how they promoted. I mean, think about Spurrier. I mean, there, there's Spurrier's a legendary football coach. There really ain't a Spurrier coaching tree. Bob Stoops would be a guy that came from Spurrier. I think Beamer. Dan Mullen, uh, to some degree, to some degree. But I mean, they, they aren't disciples. You know what I mean? Yeah. Stoops was um Stoops was Spurrier's defensive coordinator, and Spurrier entrusted a lot of responsibilities to him. I think I don't think Dan Mullen was Spurrier's offensive coordinator. I mean, Mullen was at Florida as a coordinator, but it might have been Urban Meyer that he, that he ran the offense for. Um, anyway, the Dabo coaching tree. I mean, it, am I being too critical? I mean, I'm not a Tiger fan, but I'm a college football fan. Scott fails. I mean, he got fired. Um, Chad Morris failed. Got fired. Um, Tony Elliott and God bless Virginia. I mean, you know, the, the school that Thomas oh, Jefferson man. founded are struggling mightily mm. um, through a horrific tragedy that, that really and truly could happen anywhere. I mean, it just, that sort of thing scares the daylights out of me because I got a kid at college. I got three kids in the real world. And sometimes it, you can't explain things. I mean, you really can't. If I'm not mistaken, Coastal was to play Virginia this Saturday. Um, in a big kind of a uh, kind of a measure up game or a punch up game for Coastal playing an ACC school, I don't know if they've rescheduled that game or not. I should know that. And if I'm hosting a radio show or a sports show, I would know whether or not that's the case. Um, but Virginia, uh, God bless you, and our hearts and thoughts and prayers are are certainly with um, the school that Thomas Jefferson um, founded. That's just that's just horrible, horrible, horrible. Back to politics. You ready? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got Ready. a lot of um. I mean, I don't have anything to add to what Trump said last night. Uh, First of all, why don't you grade his speech? How did he do? Did he set the right tone? <laughs> yes, but he he didn't say. I mean, somebody's somebody. I mean, obviously Trump's not a moron. I mean, somebody advises Trump, and he takes some of that advice to heart. I mean, he didn't say the big. I mean, he didn't say stop the steal. I mean, he didn't really talk much about the election. Um, can Trump be disciplined enough? to ingratiate himself to a universe of Republican voters who don't have any patience nor tolerance for him, period. I mean, they're done with him. It's about 9, 10, 
who just aren't going to vote. There are about 20% that don't want to, uh, 25%, maybe a third that don't, uh, maybe higher than that right now. I've not seen any polling since the um, the underperformance of this past Tuesday that Trump, well, you can't say this past Tuesday now, the Tuesday before this past Tuesday where Trump gets a lot of the blame. And I've actually made a list this morning of, of what went into the underperforming by the Republicans um, in the most recent midterm election. And once again, we can't say it all because there's still vote, counting votes in California. I mean, there's um, there are three precincts in California where 63% of the votes have been tallied. So we're a week and a day away from the election, and there's still about one-third of all the votes in certain uh, districts in California that haven't been counted. Um, but, but when you look at Trump, or any Republican for that matter, um, it, it, the, the, the playing field is different today, Rev. And the one thing Trump has done is change the demographic. I mean, it's a different demographic that is the Republican base voter. Um, it's not the, the, the Christian conservative. It's not the, um, the philosophically conservative. It, it's, um, it's the working class. I mean, it, that's the demo. I mean, there is no, that, that is the demo of which the Republican Party is trying to build its future upon. Um, it, it's kind of the, um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say anti-intervention. I think that gets into the weeds for most people. They don't understand really and truly why we went to war. Should we have gone to war or not? Um, they do know the factory's closed. They don't know to blame it on globalism, but they know that a political party said they had their back and didn't. They know union membership is in dramatic decline because there just aren't the jobs in America that there once were in the manufacturing sector. But, but I went back and looked. And, and, you know, I, there's one, two, three, four, five. There's five different issues at play here. And I don't know which one's more important than the other. We can hash that out together. But you've got, um, I'm going to no particular order. You ready? You've got um, young turnout. A higher number of voters under the age of 30 turned out than I ever imagined or expected or any poll predicted. You've got abortion. I mean, there's no doubt that was a part of the puzzle. You've got candidate quality. You've got Trump. You've got ballot harvesting. Now, now, if you pin me down and say which one of those is the most critical and important, it'd be ballot harvesting. I mean, it looks to me like, and I sent you a tweet yesterday that we may want to play at some point in time um, this morning. I think our listeners would find it very, very interesting. Um, there's an African-American gentleman who called for an emergency meeting at one of these election commissions, and he let them have it. That's and he great. said he's got phone messages from ballot harvesters about one thing or another. Um, but, but, but I think ballot harvesting, and once again, guys, I think what we've got to do is, is, is change our tune. We can't argue that these are voting irregularities. We can argue it's methodologies of voting we don't like, but I don't think we can say these are voting irregularities. I went back and read some of the legislation in Arizona and Nevada. They're not breaking the law. The law clearly allows for this to happen in Nevada and in Arizona. And I didn't read the Pennsylvania legislation. I Googled it, couldn't find it. But, um, but I can promise you this, if it's happening in Nevada and Arizona, it's happening in Pennsylvania. I mean, there, there is no way that the people in Arizona and, and Nevada are going to out-harvest the, the, um, the ballot harvesters in Pennsylvania. But we've got to stop calling it cheating. We've got to stop arguing that it's uh, irregularities. It's not. I mean, the law allows for this to happen in some of these states. It doesn't matter that it's allowed to happen in California because we know where those 52 ele 55 electoral votes are going. It doesn't matter that it's allowed in, in liberal state after liberal state. It only matters in some of these swing states. 
So when you say 13 states have real liberal ballot harvesting laws, who cares in California? In the grand scheme of things, who cares in New York? But you better care in these swing states when it comes to presidential politics. I mean, it does matter in some of these congressional seats, and that's why we're a week and a day out from the California primary, and we still don't have results. They're still harvesting ballots. And if I'm a Republican up one or two, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you sleep at night. Yeah. I mean, you put every political investment in your life into a race, you're a week and a day out. You saw your three-point lead turn into a two-and-a-half-point lead, turn into a two-point lead, turn into a point-and-a-half lead. Um, it's almost as if they are going to harvest until they get enough to win. But it's not breaking the law. It's not an irregularity. It's not cheating. It's playing a system that I don't think is good for America. I don't think it's healthy for democracy when a week and a day out we're still counting votes in California. And I'm not talking about 98% reporting, and there was a box that we couldn't find. I'm talking about one-third of the votes in California have not been counted a week and a day after the election. But that can't be good for democracy. But it's allowed in some of these states, and, um, and we've got to address that. If we're going to win moving forward, we either have to. I mean, I wrote something down this morning. I mean, I want to see scrums at nursing homes. I want to see a Republican ballot harvester in a fist fight with a Democrat ballot harvester over who gets these um, 60 people living in a nursing homes ballots filled out. Because that's where we are in these states. we got to find strong, healthy, brawny Republican canvassers who will go to these nursing homes and beat up the Democrat <laughs> canvasser and take the ballots away and get the, um, the, the, the person who's had Alzheimer's for 12 years and that's spoken a word, don't know their kids. we got to get that vote. and <laughs> we got to count that vote. And it's got to be with an R beside their name. Let's go to the phone. Here is JT in Florence. Good morning, JT. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Uh, <laughs> Scrums in nursing homes. That's the title of our uh, show today. I know. I know you're. It's that's funny. Um, <laughs> you think I'm playing, but I'm not. <laughs> no. Well, I, <laughs> I I did think about you know needing to to do the similar things where if you want to win, you kind of got to do it. And to your point, I mean, there's been stories where even if votes were cast irregularly or even not valid per the rules, judges have ruled they are valid, and then they start being counted. And that's legal, right? At that point, it's legal. Correct. So it's kind of maddening, truthfully. But, uh, you know, there was an article about locally how we kind of didn't see 11,000 votes at first. Did you see that article? I did. Um, that's a huge number for how many people vote. Isn't that like a third of all the people that voted? Correct. And nobody noticed? JT, I know more about that than I'm going to let on right now. I was in communication election night locally with people who were very involved in two of the races around here, and there was a lot of misinformation going around. There were a lot of things being said um, on Twitter and by the media that just weren't accurate. And there were a lot of discrepancies and concerns people had about where the ballots were, where they'd been, how we're counting those ballots, when we reported those ballots. I want to be careful here because people are working behind the scenes to try to get to the bottom of it. But but right here in our community, I mean, there was a big issue. I'll just leave it there, a big issue uh, about two races in particular, where the ballots were, um, where had they been, and how do we get them counted in the way they should be, should be counted. And the media was misreporting. I mean, I know that because I'm in communication with people associated with the campaign trying to kind of help them figure a path forward 
Um, so if it's happening here, it's certainly happening in some of these other places. That's yeah, that's my point. In our own backyard, with having to count, uh, you know, thirty to forty thousand votes, there's th- th- there were some huge red flags for me in the articles. And again, I don't know what's true and what's not yet. You know, I got to wait for that. To, but talked about having stuff on flash drives, and I'm like, this, this is not 2006, guys. Why are we putting stuff on flash drives and moving it around i don't (laughs) and then when they finally then they said okay we need to go manually count these when they manually counted them they realized some votes were doubled and i said oh my gosh anyway that's not really why i called but that is a concern i'd love to hear you guys expound on when you know what you need to know is that fair fair enough ken and this is uh i love you guys both of you you know that but i do have a question for you after the election and before the inauguration of Biden, you said that if Trump does not attend the inauguration, that he has lost your support. And I know that people's minds can change for a variety of reasons. But basically at that moment, you were like, I'm not going to support him anymore if he does that. Do you support his run? And if so, what what ultimately changed your mind? I'm hmm. just, I'm interesting curious. interesting thank you jt um and, and, this, and th- this is asked from a complete i'm not trying to pin you in a corner oh, I'm, I'm sure you're not look here i'm not yeah. bothered by being pinned in the corner i mean never apologize for that that's my responsibility if i said something that i've got to backtrack on pin me down i mean i, I don't have any problem with that don't, don't ever apologize for something i said that you take exception with i hope we're big boy enough to to have that that conversation well, it, it, it's legitimately, I want to know, I, I, I need some information on um, what's coming up, because if, if people I know have said, I'm not going to do this if he does this, I want to know if they've changed their mind, and if so, what has happened since then that made it. Fair that, enough. That's all. Fair enough. Well, I'm going to keep you listening for just a few more minutes, because we got to take a break, and I'll answer your question as honest and candidly as I possibly can in about five or six minutes. Back. How many times have I said if people were Vulcans... We'd never vote for a Democrat. We aren't. We're emotionally um, committed. We're emotionally attached. I'm an emotional person. I'll go to the game Saturday. I'll have a big time. They'll play 2001 in Sandstorm, and I will have convinced myself if the ball bounces a certain way, the Gamecocks can win. I'm emotionally invested in the Gamecocks. I mean, I'm a fan that there's nothing rational about me sitting in that stadium knowing that Tennessee had 750 yards uh, they're averaging 505 yards a game. Uh, the Gamecock defense is having trouble. The offense can't score. There's nothing logically that would convince me they have a chance to win. But I'm emotionally invested. I'm not a Vulcan. We aren't Vulcans. Um, we're, we're not logical creatures. When Trump refuses to go to the inauguration, my emotions took over. I was emotionally bothered that Trump didn't do what I felt an ex-president owed to not only his voters, but the United States of America in general and the office of the presidency. I, I, that's not logic. Now, now, I don't think he acted in any logical way. I think logically Trump should have accepted the fact that he's a former president, What the, the election's been certified, and it's my duty to go be a part of the uh, inauguration. Um, I'll, I'll give you another example. There, there's a way I think Tom Rice could have saved his career. I mean, the Reverend, I talked about it. It would have been very self-serving for me. But I think had Tom Rice come on this radio show and explained his emotions in that moment, I got emotionally invested. 
and and what Trump did. I let my emotions drive my decision making. I'm not saying he made a bad decision or not, and I'm not saying changing my mind is a good or bad decision. I'm explaining how people make decisions that appear to be spur of the moment, irrational, without thinking it through. Um, if Donald Trump runs and Ron DeSantis does not, and J.D. Vance does not, and somebody who has an, a more of an America First belief that I think is more electable, I'm for Trump, period, period, unapologetically. And if I got to take my, you know, my, my second guessing from what I said that day, um, th- then I'll take that. And, and J.T., don't ever apologize for pinning me down. I mean, I say a lot of words on the radio, four hours a day. There's 20 hours a week that I run my mouth. And some is to provoke. I mean, some is to inspire. Some is to create controversy. But I'm never going to mislead anybody intentionally. But but that moment, I made an emotionally invested decision, just like I will Saturday when, when the Gamecocks run on the field. I mean, logically, there's no reason to be there. I mean, it's going to be 48 <laughs> to 10. But but I'm not logical. I, I'm emotional. You're, we all are. We have to 10. accept. Sure, we have to accept that about ourselves. But if Donald Trump runs and wins the primary, I'm for him. And if Donald Trump runs and his opponents are Mike Pence or someone Mitch McConnell has chosen or an establishment-oriented Republican, I'm for Trump. I would have a hard time choosing between Trump and DeSantis, Trump and J.D. Vance, Trump and another America firster, Josh Hawley, somebody like that, somebody Peter Thiel picks out of the, um, the litter. But I have no problem being for Trump after having said I would not. I made a mistake. I said something where my emotions got the best of me. And, and, and once again, to the listeners, whether it's JT or anybody else, I mean, at 20 hours a week, I'm going to say things I regret. What well, We know we mispronounce things, but I'm never going to intentionally not shoot from the hip, not give it to you from the gut. That morning, I was mad with Trump. And that morning, I would have not voted for Donald Trump. But time passes. Um, people think through things. Um, how many times have we said, man, I shouldn't have done that. I mean, I shouldn't have said that. I mean, I wish, see, I think it takes a, um, a little bit, I mean, I think a clear conscience is, is, is with those who have, you know, kind of, um, admitted some of their failures and, and flaws and, and failings and, and, and mispronouncements. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, Trump DeSantis will be difficult for me. I mean, it really would. Trump JD Vance would be hard for me. Trump and Mitt Romney. Trump and Mike Pence, Trump and uh, Rob Portman, Trump and any establishment-oriented Republican, that's a no-brainer for me. I'm an America firster. Whoever flies at America flag, America first flag the highest, I'm on that team. Let's go to the phone. Katie in Florence. Good morning, Katie. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, hey, I just wanted to make, um, of course, long-time listener, I just wanted to make some comments. Um, I'm glad Trump's running. Um. If we, if the conservatives couldn't win on economy and policy this last election, we're never going to win. Um, and as far as him not going to the inauguration, I mean, I have never seen a president and his supporters treated for four years like he was and how the country was drugged through so many things that were never proven. People seem to forget that. And... um also, I'd like to see Trump carry Lake. I think her name's Carrie Lake. It is. And um, and I don't know what can be done about the elections. I don't know if the Supreme Court can do something about. I mean, I know you don't want the federal government 
telling states what to do, but when states do what affects the whole country, allowing these ballots to keep coming in and coming in and coming in, what's the point of early voting if you're not counting early? Anyway, y'all have a good day. Thank you, Katie. Appreciate that. Uh, Carrie Lake's a generational talent. I mean, she's a great communicator, and I mean, her, her, her days are still ahead of her. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There's a place in the Republican Party for Carrie Lake moving forward. I'm going to go back to something she said about the Trump voter being mistreated. I, I was in a meeting yesterday, and, and we were talking about the radio show and where it came from and where it is, and it didn't have any influence, and now it has a little bit of influence. It didn't have any listeners. Now it's got a bunch of, a bunch of listeners. Um, we didn't know what we were doing. Still don't know what we're doing. But, but anyway, um, you folks have tolerated us in this journey to here. And someone asked me in the meeting, about, you know, 10 years ago when I decided to do this, they were encouraging me for not staying down. I mean, I got run out of office. I got thrown out of office in a political scandal, political crap storm that Kahalig and I went through. Um, and and they, they were kind of congratulating me for landing on my feet. Well, the one thing I did that I know was right is I took my medicine. I made a mistake and I owned it. And, and I think, I mean, you, you damn right there was a little bit of me that said, look at what they did to me but didn't do to them. I mean, I tried to walk to the beat of my own drum and look how they treated me because I did. And I wanted to take an ad in the state paper and I wanted to get on television and I wanted to rant and rave about what, how I got treated and how others didn't. But that, to, to me, you clean up quicker and you have more energy going forward if when you screw up, you take your medicine. And I think for Trump to go to that inauguration, despite the way he was treated, despite the way his supporters were treated, would have been the bigger man. It would have been the more honorable thing to do. Trump did what you think Trump, or what you expected Trump to do. He just kind of took a pass. I think that was a moment in time that Donald Trump can say, despite what you think about me, I'm bigger than any of you. I'm stronger than any of you. I'm gone for a little while, but I'll be back. And I think that was a unique moment in time that he had a chance to seize that moment and said, I'm bigger than all of you put together. But, but he chose to do what I consider to be a little more petty. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. The people that won't vote for Trump if he wins the nomination are pieces of crap. Because everybody that that old dog is a Trumpster will vote for the piece of crap that they put for it every time. How many times have we voted for Lindsey Graham? But anyway, let me ask you this, though. You know, you're, you're talking about... Uh, and it was legal, and maybe it was. I don't even know if to what those laws they passed in those states were constitutional. And if they were constitutional and the laws were there and they used that to beat us two years ago, didn't the Republicans know that? And why didn't they plan for it? Either they're stupid incompetent or they had no problem with the Democrats with it. But I tell you what, when you got a town in Arizona that has 700 people and they, and they harvest 1,100 Democrat votes out of that town, well, that's cheap. And if you don't think that's going on in every one of those states, then, uh, you know, you, you, need to, you need to back off the medication. Because, I mean, they may be, they, it may be legitimate, uh, legal to ballot harvest, but it ain't legal when you put votes in there that ain't supposed to be in there. That's for damn sure. You know, so, so there is cheating going on. I guess we, you know, and my next question, too, you know, remember, remember back in the days when people chose their leader, they chose their leader because he would be bad enough to lead them into battle. wonder how many of our leaders would be bad enough to lead us into battle. Could you see Lindsey Graham standing over there on the, on the bunker with his, uh, with his daggone uh, assault rifle, as they say, or his daggone or whatever, and he said, follow me, men, and then charge into the enemy? 
Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Phones are lighting up today. I figured they would. Yeah. I want to hear what you have to say. Um, JT, call me out first thing. Um, certainly you can as well. We'll be back in just a minute. Well, those other shows may have bigger audiences, but who's advocating scrums in the nursing homes? <laughs> Seriously. I've just heard one. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, the Hannity show and the, I mean, Limbaugh is the best has ever been and all these other national syndicated, nationally syndicated shows. I mean, obviously the host paid a lot more money. They've got larger audiences, a bigger influence, but who has advocated scrumming in the nursing homes <laughs> while Republicans are canvassing and Democrats are canvassing for ballots? Let's go to the phone. Barry and Sherall. Hey, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. An exciting day uh, yesterday. I'm glad he came out. I'm all Trump. Y'all know that. Um... He ain't gay, hey, is he? I, oh, you're talking about? I'm not, sorry. Not I'm that sorry. kind of guy. Yeah, I'm sorry. Hey, hey, Ken. Uh, so what? What's up with the other 38 billion we're gonna send to Ukraine again? Anything from Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott on that? Uh, we're just gonna keep pumping my my kids' money, and I'm gonna have to work until I'm 72. They're gonna send Ukraine whatever Ukraine needs. So, I mean, that, so that, we that, do a, we do a false flag yesterday, and we rush and um uh, and, and blame Russia, and it was actually Ukraine that killed the two Polish farmers trying yeah. to shoot yeah so we about created world war three and we well it's a nato nation i mean there's some nato bylaws that say if a nato nation a member nation is attacked i mean america has to defend in some way shape or form so yeah i mean if, if you're ukraine and you want to further engage nato or involve nato it, it would stand to reason you know let, let, let a missile get away from you and end up in poland yeah, exactly. So uh, everybody be careful of that coming forward in the next month or two. Watch for a lot of those. They want more money uh, from us so our kids can go broke, so we can support that money laundering, FTX-funded uh, government that we have right now. So I'm ready, scorched earth. If you're not American first, I, I don't really give a rat's, you know what. Um, Ken, I'm, I'm all in, man. Uh, I'm like you. All in, American first. If you're not American first, I want you out. But we got to win. Barry, yeah. we got to win. Listen, Ken, I want scorched earth. Okay, fair enough. I, I, I'm not there. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not there. I am close to there. But but when I read the data of what happened this past – thank you, Barry. You appreciate it. When I read the data of what happened this past uh, Tuesday – I really can't say this past Tuesday any longer, a week from yesterday, um, I mean, we, we got to figure out a way to get that 10 or 12% Republicans who, who took a pass – I mean, forget the independents. I mean, there'll be a way to engage the independents down the road. If you can't get your base to support your message, you're not going to win over independents. We've got to do something. Now, now once again, I said yesterday, I'll say again, the, the never-Trumper didn't vote for Walker, didn't vote for Vance. The always-Trumper voted for Kemp. They voted for DeWine. I mean, that, that is the fundamental difference. Breeze touched on that. I mean, that, you know, when you look at the data, but I mean, it's clear to me now, a week and a day later, the never-Trumper 
chose to not vote for the Republican candidate for Senate in Georgia, nor did they vote for the Republican candidate in the state of Ohio, the Senate candidate in Ohio. I mean, to me, I don't know how you square that up. But that those people, that 15, 20% of the party, now only about 9 or 10% voted for the Democrat. But that, that percent of the party want their party back. We're not giving them their party back, but we've got to win elections. And it's pretty hard to win elections with only 87, 88% of your base supporting the Republican candidate. Let's go to the phone. Here's Alan and Florence. Morning, Alan. Hey, good morning, Ken. Um, my question to you is, um, who Trump's administration, they turned over 92% of his, um, uh, his staff while he was in office. You know, Jim Kelly, John Mattis, who are they going to stand behind when he gets uh, uh, back up there again? I don't have any idea. I mean, the one I think the one mistake Trump made was not believing how corrupt the swamp was. I mean, he ran on that. Thank you for the call, Alan. He ran on that, and that was a lot of his messaging. But when Trump got to Washington, he didn't fire anybody. I mean, he made the usual administrative staff position hires, right? I mean, he had a... Um, he hired an attorney general. He hired somebody to run the EPA. He hired somebody to run the Department of um of Justice. I mean, he, you know, the other well, attorney general would run the Department of Justice. He hired an FBI director, but but he really kept some of the um some of the creatures of Washington around too long. Um, it would be very interesting. Let's say Trump gets a redo. I mean, let's say he gets elected, and 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 does he go to the White House and give pink slips to everybody that works there? I mean, a lot of the Trumpsters would like him to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you better find somebody that knows, you know, where, where they keep the, the, the spare change for the drink machine. I mean, there's got to be some local knowledge left in the, uh, in the levels of government. But, but the mistake Trump made was not believing. I mean, I think he believed he ushered in kind of a cleansing of the swamp. And the swamp pushed back. And I think Steve Bannon said it better than Trump. And I would imagine Bannon gave Trump this advice. You better keep your eye on those on those underlings. You better keep your eye on the, the, the subordinates in the White House. They're not on board with you. They don't like you. They would, they, they would much rather you fail than succeed, and they're going to do anything to undermine the advancement of your agenda. I mean, that, that's something I think Trump really, really dropped the ball on. I mean, I think he did a lot of good things for the country. But Trump's not God. I mean, he's not perfect. He's not, you know, um, he's not a savior. I mean, he, he's a very consequential and different political figure who may or may not get a chance to try it again. Back in a minute. 6610937 is our number. Well, we have the big announcement. We've kind of analyzed that and talked about it. But do you believe he has a shot to actually win? Of course he does. Absolutely he does. I mean, he'd be the odds-on favorite to win the Republican primary. I mean, that puts you 50-50 in the ball game with the way Florida and Ohio have turned. I mean, you've all of a sudden got a contest between Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Michigan. Um, can he hold his own in those states? Yeah, of course he can. The one thing the Republicans have to figure out is the never-Trumper. You don't like them, they don't like you. There's a lot more of us than there are of them, but we can't win without them. And, and that's what we've got to address internally in some way, shape, or form. And that's why I've talked a little bit to the state party. I mean, they knew this was coming. I mean, they knew Trump was going to announce, and now you got to, you know, you got to have a primary. And, I mean, I don't know if DeSantis runs or not. DeSantis is 44 years old. If I were Ron DeSantis, I'd say thank you, but no thank you. You'd have to show me some real good polling data that convinces me there's no way I can lose before I take on Trump. Because if you try to run when you're 48 or 49 or 50, but you've offended the America Firsters, you ain't got a chance. Um, J.D. Vance is 38. 
I mean, those are the other two political figures that I think are incredibly relevant and have a future amongst the America firsters. But can Trump win? Of course he can. Absolutely he can if he can get out of a primary. I mean, Ohio and Florida are red. So all of a sudden, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to battle there. You got to go to Michigan. You got to go to Wisconsin. You got to go to Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, North Carolina, and Georgia. And he could hold his own there. So, of course, absolutely, he could be the next president. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Morning, Larry. Good morning. I think that we have got to change something uh, about the way we're talking about the, these never Trumpers. And, you know, years ago, I heard somebody say Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. And I think that's a good analogy. And the thing that we've got to be saying is not we can't win without them. They can't win without us. And, and we need to change that narrative, and we need to keep serving up the same candidates in these primaries, and we need to keep pushing them through the primary to tell these never-Trumpers, if you ever want to see a Republican in office again, it's going to be the ones we pick, period. Now, get off your duff and vote. Get in line. We got in line for 30 years. For 30 years, we took Dole. We took McCain. We took Romney. We took all your special people, and we got nothing for it. So now you're going to try it our way. And it's going to take one or two election cycles, not long, before they're going to realize, guys, we can't get a candidate through the primaries anymore. And they're going to settle down and start voting the way they're supposed to vote, and they're going to get in line. But we can't say, oh, we can't win without them. No, sir. They can't win without us. Larry, what do we what Larry, what do we have in common? I mean I mean obviously small government, or we believe in small government, limited government, the promoting of freedoms and liberties. But but aside from the typical, you know, I mean the central belief of conservatism, I mean what what does the America firster and the never Trump where are some synergies, I guess is what I'm looking for. Um on things that matter, I don't think there's anything. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest with you. They don't, you know, the America Firster doesn't have a big ideological problem with spending. They do. We don't want immigration. They don't care. We are big on social issues, and they're socially compromised. So, honestly, I don't know. I think what we've got to do before we can make a convert is we've got to turn them into a good pagan. We need them to understand that they have fallen away from the ideals that they claim they believe in. And we're going to have to convince them of that. And then we've got to bring them back in to conservatism. But I think we're going to have to ease up on our pension to spend. I think we've got something we'll have to give up, and they got something they got to give up. they they got to get rid of this uh, country club mentality and that there's us and them and that it's a we. So, so what you're arguing, and I don't disagree with this because I talk to people at the party. So what you're saying is a group of us America Firsters who are able to articulate our worldview – need to go sit down with the Heritage Foundation and say, okay, offer up a proposal that cuts spending by 2% annually and we'll promote, advocate, but we got to have you on our team when we start trying to take over the House, Senate, and, and eventually the presidency. Is that kind yeah. of the deal that you think, okay, but that, that makes sense. I mean, I, I'm there. I mean, once again, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, these think tanks that have dominated, you know, Republican ideology for a long time, very few America Firsters know they exist. I mean, they don't know what the Heritage Foundation is. They don't know what the Cato Institute is. But but I think there has to be that conversation and, in turn, the convert as a result of the conversation. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. See, that's a philosophical thought. I mean, that, that's getting in the weeds a little bit. I want to read something real quick, and we'll go to the phone. I want to hear from you today. I imagine we would. Um, this is don't blame Trump and the American conservative. Remember the day after we found out that the uh, Republicans had lost control of the Senate or weren't going to be and the majority of the Senate? 
Uh, the National Review had an article, Don't Blame Mitch. Simultaneously, the American Conservative had an article, Don't Blame Trump. Well, I mean, the, the National Review is still, um, I mean, they're, they're advocating, they've watered it down a bit, but it's still kind of a, a globalist, interventionist, American imperialism worldview. The American Conservative much more in line with America first, but it's Pat Buchanan's baby. I mean, you, you got George Will and William Buckley and some of the others, you know, what I call intellectual conservatism of the modern era in the National Review and American Conservative would be the rambunctiousness of America first. But J.D. Vance wrote the article, um, Don't Blame Trump. I want to highlight a couple of things he said because it kind of plays into what Larry said. Um, let's start with the obvious caveat. There's a lot we don't know. He's right. There are a lot we don't know. We're learning things as the days progress. I mean, I said this morning, I'll say it again. I've come up with a list of five. I don't know which one's more important than another. I mean, I think I understand this pretty well. Ballot harvesting, Trump, candidate quality, young turnout, abortion. I mean, those are five things I've come up with that seem to have influenced the way the election went down uh, this past Tuesday. But J.D. Vance says, let's start with the obvious caveat. There's a lot we don't know. He's right. Precinct-level data still outstanding in most states, and exit polls are notoriously finicky. Votes are still being counted out west. Uh, they are. They're still being counted. One-third of the vote in California hadn't been counted yet. Uh, we're still ignorant about what we're still ignorant about a lot. But any effort to blame Trump or McConnell, for that matter, ignores a major structural advantage for Democrats, money. Money is how candidates fund the all-important advertising. And this is so important, guys. This isn't us. You ready? That reaches swing voters. And it's how candidates fund turnout operations. And in every marquee national race, Republicans got crushed financially and boots on the ground. The reason is Act Blue. Act Blue is the Democrats' national fundraising platform where 21 million individual donors uh, shovel small donations into every marquee national race. John Fetterman raised $75 million via Act Blue. Remember the day I said we all need to send Herschel 20 bucks? or 40 bucks or 50 bucks, whatever it is you can afford. Act Blue is the, is the vessel or vehicle of which Democrat voters in California fund John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. I mean, most people don't have an extra grand laying around. They certainly don't have an extra 10 grand laying around or 20 or 5 or 100 grand or a million to fund a super PAC, but they've got a 20 bucks or 40 or 50, and the Democrats do a phenomenal job of coordinating and being the conduit between the, the person who wants to give 40 bucks to, for Democrats to be in charge and, and a, a stroke-stricken candidate in Pennsylvania. Uh, Republican small donor fundraising efforts are paltry by comparison. The Republican fundraising efforts suffer from, here, here we go, you ready? Because this is where we get to the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, uh, the credentialed class, the elites. High consulting and list-building fees. I can relate, guys, I'm telling you. And you've heard Kahaley on this show talk a lot about um, how much of, of the, in other words, if the Republicans raise a million dollars, the Democrats are spending about 9% on what we'll call administrative fees. We're spending about 22%. I mean, our consultants think a lot of themselves. Our list suppliers think a lot of themselves. Um, and and, and we got to, you know, when uh, the Rep Herschel Walker can't afford to pay consultants to acquire some of these small-time donors. We need lower overhead in some of these campaigns. It really comes down to somewhat of a business proposition. I mean, as a business person, I'm always monitoring overhead. I'm an inflow and outflow, uh, you know, uh, revenues and liabilities. I mean, there are a lot of ways to look at it, 
but but we have the Republicans by nature. And, and guys, this really plays into the establishment. Why, why do the consultants not want Trump to be elected? Because they build a machine, and the machine allows them to get about 21% of all the money we raise. I mean, it goes in some form of consulting fee or polling fee or, or advisement fee. And the Democrats are doing a much better job. It's kind of interesting. The Republicans profess to be the pro-business uh, party, the pro-business you know, um, mindset. But the Democrats run much more efficient campaigns than the Republicans do because their consultants aren't paid as much. How many consultants are bucking the Democrats? None. How many consultants are bucking the Republicans? Nearly all. I mean, the Lincoln Project is all consultants. I mean, it's former Republican consultants. Why? Because Trump said you don't deserve 20%. I mean, why, why do you think if, uh, if, if, if the public donates a million dollars to my campaign, what makes you think you deserve 200000 of it? The Democrats only get about 90000 of it. So these high consulting fees, these list-building fees, and once again, I can personally attest to that being a reality. But the one thing J.D. Vance says, and then we'll go to the call, in the long term, the way to solve this is to build a turnout machine, a ballot harvesting apparatus, not gripe at the former president, but building a turnout machine with, without organized labor and amid declining church attendance is no small thing. That's interesting. He mentions declining church attendance. One, our party has a major asset, contra-conventional wisdom to rally these voters. There is no president, excuse me, there is no politician in America today get them, that can rally a plurality of Americans like former President Donald Trump. Now more than ever, our Trump, our, excuse me, our party needs President Trump's leadership in turning these voters out and suffers for the absence from his being on the stage. Um, J.D. Vance, he, he was on um, CNN said he didn't talk about Trump. He didn't. It is an accepting speech. He was real. It was real guarded about you know going too far out there, being Trump's guy, so to speak. But he writes in the American Conservative that the only person that can turn out the demo, and it's kind of interesting. He mentions church attendance because I've read a lot about church attendance. Declining church attendance is hurting Republican voters. I mean, it really and truly is. Um, declining labor participation has hurt Democrat voters um, in, in a very similar way. But but Trump is a turnout machine, and, and I think when you talk about the demo. But here's what I would do. You ready? Here's what I'd do. I mean, I would go to, to Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and I would camp out in Walmart. And I'd get every single working-class white person or black person that or Hispanic that walks in that door registered to vote. I'd get their name. I'd build a list a mile long of everybody in these six or seven states that go to Walmart twice a week. Those are the base. That's the base, guys. It's not the country club. I mean, that we, we always imagine. I'll, I'll carry you back 10 years in time. Robert Cahaley and I had a beer one day, and we talked about politics in general. And I said, Robert, if we can ever get to a place where the person playing the round of golf, asking the bartender for a beer, is on the same political team as the person carrying the clubs or fixing the drink at the bar, I mean, we're in like Flynn. That is Trumpism. Now, now, I don't want to call it Trumpism because it's negatively connotated. I mean, when you say Trumpism, oh, I don't want any part of that. It's America first. It's the belief that every American has an opportunity to be the best they possibly can be. The way you are the best you possibly can be is to live your life uninhibited by, by government involvement, government intrusion, 
I want liberty. I want freedom. I want a right to pursue my path. If I'm a bartender at a country club, if I'm the president of the country club, there's a common element in all of us. We aspire to be free. We, We dream about a better life. Normally, the better life doesn't consist of, you know, government giving you something. I mean, if government gives you something, you're beholden, and government can't give you but so much. I've never understood the welfare mindset. So I'm going to be comfortable with government giving me $500 a month, but that's it? I mean, why wouldn't you want $700 or $7,000 for that matter? I mean, it's just, I mean, there's no doubt about it. There has been a, um, there's been an effort to condition people into believing that this is good enough. And, and your plight in life is not your mistake. But I believe that somebody can preach to the masses. And, and I would go to Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and I'd camp out at Walmarts. And I'd have more Republican operatives than you can imagine. And I'd build a database. And I'd harvest ballots. I'd get these folks registered to vote. I would know where they live. I would have contact information. And a year from now, I would really start laser focusing. I mean, that's what it's going to take. Because once again, the advantage we have now is knowing Florida and Ohio are in our column. That's 29 electoral votes in Florida. That's 18 in Ohio. That's 47 that we had to fight for, tooth and nail, cross our fingers that we could win Ohio, we could win Florida. We don't have to cross our fingers anymore. We're going to win those two states, whether Trump's the nominee or not. Now we got to go compete in Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Michigan. You don't have to win all those. What about three of those? What about three of those seven and the Republican wins the presidency? And I think you've got to fight fire with fire. And those are the states the Democrats have mobilized in this ballot harvesting. I just believe our voters today in this America First movement are going to Walmart twice a week. Meet them where they are. Get their information. Formulate list after list after list. It would cost, I mean, I did the math the other day. Let's say the presidency come down to two, comes down to 100,000 votes in three states. I mean, that's kind of where we are. We're a divided nation. And, um, you know, Jeff and I debated about popular vote. Well, go check the popular vote for the midterms. I mean, about 5 million people more voted for the Republican than the Democrat. But they're only going to pick up, what, six or eight seats, seven or eight, nine, maybe 10 seats. Um, but, but no, that, that's where the voters are. So, so go find those people. Com- convince them to be registered to vote. Con them in to registering to vote. <laughs> what? Mail them a ballot. Knock on their door. Get that ballot. Put it in a box. Turn it in. Those are the rules. Let's go to the phone. Bruno in Florence. Hey, Bruno. Hey, hey, guys. Good morning. Hey, hey Ken. I did a little, uh, a little uh, polling on, on on my family. I I have five five kids, three three boys, two girls. I got one of the girls are is is married. One of my daughters is a single mom. And the three three boys are are like middle 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 class workers, and they're all in their thirties. The three boys love 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 Trump. The single mom hates Trump, and uh, and the married married daughter would rather vote for someone else. So there's another another issue for Trump: are to are women women vote. And I don't know how 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 he turns turns that around. And then, do we get our stronger if a DeSantis jumps in? Are are we stronger after Trump and and a DeSantis battle? That's all I got got to say. Thank, Thank you. you. That that is the I mean, that's the most interesting question that I can't answer. 
I mean, I, you know, I said that if Trump didn't go to the inauguration, I never hope Trump again. But you say things in the heat of the moment. I mean, I, I'm not ready to answer that yet because I don't know. I mean, I, I really, I thought a lot about it last night. I thought a lot about it. I mean, as, as the um, as the announcement was pending and we knew what was about to come, I mean, I began thinking about, okay, Trump and DeSantis. I mean, they have a bloody campaign. I mean, they just beat the immortal, you know, what out of one another. Because you're not going to go against Trump without having to throw some punches, right? I mean, there's some punches coming your way. you got to be able to, to counter punch or punch back. Um, are we a better party after a primary that includes DeSantis and Trump, or could DeSantis and Trump meet and come to some sort of compromise? Uh, to me, that that seems more more productive. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems better for the party and all of us tr- trying to I don't know, Rev, internally hash out you know our loyalty to Trump, our belief that DeSantis may give us a better chance to win. Let hold that for a second. I mean, that, that's an interesting um, question, an interesting debate that I don't have an answer to. I mean, I stand by my comments. Trump can be president. Trump has a good chance to lose the presidency. DeSantis can be president. DeSantis has a much less chance of losing the presidency in 2024. I believe that. But once again, Trump's got to chart his own course. DeSantis has to blaze his own trail. Take a break. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937. Very few political candidates have the quality i mean i text with a buddy of mine last night at the state party we were talking about trump and his announcement his pending announcement and i said you know trump's cancer and chemo i mean it's hard to be both i mean it's hard to be cancer and chemo and he could be chemo in the same day that he's cancer but it is what it is it is something the party has to to deal with the best way it knows how someone asked a second ago you know desantis or trump are we better having that battle within are we better desantis bowing out and waiting his turn so to speak being a 44 year old i don't know i mean i don't have that decision to make I mean, I think I understand some of the um, dynamics within, but but obviously Trump is not going to listen to anybody. And somebody asked me yesterday what his motivation was. I mean, he's got somewhere north of $140 million at a political action committee that, that he can spend on himself or others. Let me let me render a guess. I mean, let me ask you, who do you think Trump might spend that $140 million on himself or, or a bunch of others? I think you know the answer Yeah, I mean, I think question. even the most ardent Trump supporter will agree, given the opportunity to promote himself or others, He's going to normally choose choose himself, but he's both chemo and ca- and, and I'm cancer, and I think that's a compliment and a and a curse all in the same. Author of the critically acclaimed and best selling book, The Founder's Speech to a Nation in Crisis, Stephen Rab is with us. Stephen, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? We are doing well. So Trump makes the announcement that he's um I guess he's Grover Cleveland 2.0. Um, Cleveland ran in 84, (laughs) lost in 88, ran again in 92-1. It does create a lot of controversy within the party. Um, What say you? Well, that's right, and and we're picking the fighter, right? We we want a fighter. We need a fighter. We're done with the milk toast. We had milk toast nominees for several rounds, and now we're done with that. We know we have to have someone who will stand strong, and and the choice is going to be: is it Trump, who's a heck of a fighter? He's the mercenary. We hired the first time around because we needed someone to defend this onslaught of the left. Uh, that is the hate on America um, onslaught and, and to destroy the liberties of the people. Um, and, that's, and that's, I think, what we're waiting for now is, is that going to be Trump or DeSantis? In, in my estimation, and I think you just touched on it with, with your, your good uh, cancer and chemo uh, connection there, I, I think Trump is more unpredictable which can be good, but can also mean that it's all about Trump sometimes. He doesn't know when to stop. He, he doesn't have discipline in, in his messaging. And so I say, well, DeSantis, who had a lot of that fighter characteristic, seems to pick his 
fights a little bit better, seems to focus more on when to fight, when not to fight. And, and, I, and so I think that that's going to emerge over time as being something that people gravitate to. My bet, if I had to put money on it, is that we're going to see a DeSantis as a nominee. And for people who say, well, he has to wait his turn, I'd say, you know, our whole focus should be uh, who is the best fighter who is most likely to win? That's the, that's the only question we should answer. Is the best fighter most likely to win? And my my answer to that question would be DeSantis over Trump. But if I tell you what, if, if Donald Trump is the nominee, I think there's an awful lot of patriots like me who are going to say, stand up and be right with him because, uh, because we have to remember the real battle is not the infighting of the GOP. The real battle is between those who are patriots, who are the 1776 Project, versus those on the left who would destroy America, the 1619 Project. So our focused minds should be on who will help us defeat the, those who would tear down our country. Stephen, when you go down that road, and I hear this a lot, and I'm sure you do as well, that you know the, the majority of the party are America firsters. The minority of the party are the, what I'd call the modern electoral conservative, which the party's been predicated on it for, for a generation or two. Um, and, and we had it this morning, a couple of callers said, look, I put up with Dole. I didn't like him. I put up with um, Romney. I didn't like him. I put up with the Bushes. I didn't like them. They were interventionists, globalists. They didn't have the American workers' best interests at heart. I'm damn sure not doing it again. I'm not going along to get along. I mean, what do you say to that universe? Because there's no doubt when you look at the empirical data, Trump didn't get all the, excuse me, the Trump candidates didn't get all the Republican vote in the midterms. I mean, that's undeniable. That There's no doubt some took a pass. Some even voted for the Democrat. But what do you tell the majority of the party who feel like they're being asked to to do what they've always done, and that is, you know, back up a half step and allow somebody else to take Trump's place. Well, I don't know that I would put DeSantis in the same camp as the Bushes, right? I don't know if I would put DeSantis in the same camp as as McCain. So, or, is it Trump or DeSantis? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but is it Trump or DeSantis? Yeah, in my mind, it is. Okay. In my mind, it's it's the whole thing. The whole race is going to come down to those two, and everyone else is going to be a sideshow. And, and and I think they're both fighters. So I think they both answer the question that, and I agree. Well, we we need someone who's who's forward leaning because we are fighting for the soul of our nation, and we cannot uh, tiptoe. So we've got to have a fighter. But I I do think that DeSantis is a fighter, and and uh, and so I would answer that question with, yeah, we we, we I agree. We've got to stand strong, um, and we have to pick between the two strong candidates, and they're both strong. And and in my estimation, one of them is is a disciplined strong. And the other is, is, a, is a little bit more egocentric in his, his strength. Um, and when his interests align with ours, he's great. The challenge with Trump is that when his interests do not align, align with conservatism, um, and it's all about Trump, then, then he, he does things that, that, uh, that harm us and that harm the party and that harm our, our chances of winning. And, and that's why I focus on who's going to win, who's, who's the fighter who can win this thing. Interesting. Stephen, what is the book, The Founder's Speech to a Nation in Crisis, about and where can people find it? Sure. It's about if the Founding Fathers came to America right now and gave one speech to America, what would they say? And I took a couple years and put all their quotes together, the pertinent quotes that apply to our world right now, into a narrative form, into a speech from the Founders to our country in 10 chapters. And people respond to it. It's got over a thousand five-star reviews. It's the number one national bestseller on uh, on the founding of America, and they can find it at any of the online retailers. Certainly on Amazon, or they can go to the, the founderspeech.com, 
and learn more about the book and find out everywhere it can be purchased. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate that. And I would imagine Jefferson would write the speech that the founders would give, whoever the founders <laughs> I'm having to give. Thank you, Stephen, very That's much. It. That's it. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I got to believe that there's a speech written from the former founders. It would be written by, <laughs> by old TJ, the redhead rabble rouser from the Commonwealth of Virginia. You know, we touched on this a couple of days back. Remember the, the point I tried to make a few days back about there's this scale, I mean, you know, one to ten, where is Trump? Um, when Trump is carrying the burden, or he's perceived to be carrying the burden for the American people, the American worker, the Walmart shopper, um, that's him at his best. I mean, that really, he's got a fighter. I mean, these people that know there's a room somewhere that Dave Chappelle talked about, they know they're not invited in that room. They know they're frowned upon. You know, from inside that room, when Trump is speaking for those people, he's a 10. I mean, the burden of the American people, the burden of the American, that's my guy. I mean, I want a fighter. I want a brawler. I mean, he he can do things I would never imagine to be done. But when he turns it into these personal political grievances, he's a one. So so in essence, that's what he's got to do. Now, he's got to figure out a, a way to stay on the, the side of carrying the burden for the American worker and not about him, not about these petty personal political grievances he has. You know, um, look at what they did to me. Look at what the fake news did to me. I mean, the fake news is doing it to the American. He's got to make it about them, not him. And that's hard for him. I mean, even the most ardent Trump supporter will agree. He is a, I mean, he's the classical narcissist. He's not the only one in politics, guys. He's just more outspoken about his narcissism. He's more public about his narcissism. I mean, Mitt Romney is every bit as narcissistic as Donald Trump. Barack Obama is probably more narcissistic than Donald Trump. Trump is just in your face with it. But but I think if he can calibrate and, and manage his personality where he appears to be carrying the burden of the American worker, there's a path forward. Now, the path is a lot easier without DeSantis. You know, the previous caller said, what does that look like? Well, Stephen Rabb just said that he thinks DeSantis gets in and he thinks we have a bloody primary and it will be, you know, th- th- there's something about iron sharpening iron. I mean, you know, um, my consultant told me that we want a we want a hotly contested primary, and I want you to be sharp. I want you to get beat up on. I want you to understand that this thing is not going to be easy. Um, but how does if Trump is the let's say DeSantis decides not to run, how does Trump engage that nine or ten or eleven percent? I get Larry's point. I mean, you know, they they if the, if Trump told his army to walk away and not support Republican candidates, they're done. I mean, it's not even close. Walker's not in a runoff. Vance is not in the Senate. Masters didn't come close. Kerry Lake doesn't come close. I mean, none of that happens. But he's got to figure out a way, or we've got to figure out a way to kind of put those complicated pieces of that political puzzle together. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. If you notice, the candidates who got elected with overwhelming support have the same principles of the three guys you have in every Friday. The three principles of conservatism are God, family, and country. The Democrats are against all three of those, and they show it. DeSantis, big God guy, you know, marriage, family, schools, parents, family, country, you know, Get this stuff CRT out of the schools. America's great. America's good. Everyone that follows that, Tim Scott, big God, family, country, one overwhelming. Nicole or uh, 
the woman in uh, Wisconsin, uh, where what uh, Christy Noem, overwhelming support. When when conservatives put out their message and follow up and execute, they win, and that's the message they've got to take because they they started a long time ago getting God out of the out of the public square. Look at what they did during COVID. First thing they shut down were the churches. They left the liquor stores open. The family, they started breaking up early, saying women don't need a man. The feminists came along, reinforced that, and now they've they've had to change that to where they got the transgenders going against the feminists, and they're telling the women that they aren't important no more. You, You know, a man can compete in sports with women. In country, they teach this country is terrible from its founding, and they tear it down at every point. That's why people are begging for that. If DeSantis or Trump, when he talks about God, family, and country, his support went way up. So that's what we've got to support is an agenda that supports God, family, and country. I didn't see any agenda from uh, the leader of the Senate. I didn't even see him out uh, with any of the candidates, nor did I see the Bushes or the Cheneys or anybody other than going for the Democrats. So you give the the American people God, family, and country, we're going to win overwhelmingly. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. See, and I push back on that a little bit. I think there's a reason J.D. Vance said, in the long term, the way to solve this is build a turnout machine, not grab at the former president, but building a turnout machine without organized labor and amid declining church attendance is no small thing. But that's very intentional. Amid declining church attendance. I think God sells in South Carolina. I think God sells in the Midwest. I think God sells in in certain places. I'm not sure how much. And I'm I'm not saying, you know, but it's not, it's not, but it doesn't change the way I see the world. I mean, my foundational belief system is biblical. I mean, I was raised in a Baptist church. I mean, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But but I think when you look at some of the um, some of the exit polling, well, let's do this. I mean, I, I want to take a break and get my hands on this document. Um, I, I just think you got to be careful leading with God. I, I just think, you know, there's a reason J.D. Vance said, and, and J.D.'s a smart guy, but, but he said in his article in the American Conservative, uh, amid declining church attendance, I mean, the, the number of people who profess to be Christians today is less than it was yesterday. It'll be less tomorrow than it was today. I mean, we see a declining spirituality. It's not really a spirituality, but more of an organized religion. And when people hear God and Republican, they hear organized religion. And I just don't think you lead with that. Now, now Joe could be right. I could be absolutely wrong. And, and I think you can lead with God in, in, the, in the PD region of South Carolina. I think you can lead with God in rural Texas. But I think when you get to Pennsylvania, when you get to Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, Georgia, North Carolina, you, you got to be careful there. Um, I'll say this, the um, the upstate of Greenville, when I ran, I'm talking a lot about when I ran. When I ran in 2010, um, there was a very, very re- big religious vote of the upstate. There's still a big religious vote of the upstate, but it's outpaced by the non-religious vote along the coast. Um, the transients moving to the Grand Strand and Charleston and Buford and Hilton Head, I mean, they, they're not regular church attendees. 
They're Giuliani Republicans. They're, 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 I mean, they believe, they have a spirituality about them. They're just not regular church attendees. Um, they don't vote based on some social, you know, order or social world order. And I think, uh, I'm not, I, I'm just, I, what, Joe could be right. I could be wrong. I mean, I've been wrong a lot in my life. But, but I would be careful leading with God. I, I just think some of these swing states, some of these voters, um, how many Walmart shoppers are regular church attendees? How many Walmart shoppers, you know, make reading the Bible daily a part of their life? I mean, that's the demo. I mean, we know America firsters are the working class. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, the, the evidence is obvious there. I mean, it's, it's African-American. I mean, we've grown in the Af- African-American sector. We've grown to the Hispanics overwhelmingly. And, and a lot of those people are religious. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There are a lot of religious people in America, but there are a lot of people who aren't. And I think a political party that tries to encompass, you know, or tries to exclude those, I just think if you lead with God, you're taking a big chance. In politics, I'm not saying live your life. I mean, Joe lives his life according to that principle. I try to live my life according to that principle. I mean, there's nothing more important in my life than my faith. But, but I, I don't live in Pennsylvania. I don't live in Arizona. I don't live in Nevada. And we're trying to win an election, a 50-state election based on an electoral college. And, and once again, I don't think you sell the same thing in, in Nevada that you sell in the PD region of South Carolina. Let's take a break. Back in just a minute. Here's the point I'm trying to make. 50 years ago, 90% of Americans professed to be Christians. Today, that number is 64% of Americans. Um, 22% of Americans attend church every week. That number was about 45%. So we're seeing a tremendous decline of the people who profess a belief in, in Christianity and the number of people. Uh, I, I, you know, once again, I, I mean, I understand what Joe's saying. I think it's the principled argument to make. It's the, it's the um, we talk a lot about policies and principle. And I think being on God's side is always the right side. I mean, it's not whether or not God's on your team or you on God's team when it comes to politics or business or whatever it is, a host on a radio show, whatever it is uh, we do in our lives. I mean, if you are a spiritual person and you believe in um, some higher power, I mean, being in tune with that is probably more important than anything. But I think winning elections, you have to accept demos as they are, unless we're going to change the demo. And right now, the number of people who profess to be Christians was 90, is now 64, 22% 22% of Americans attend church every, 31% of Americans never attend church or synagogue. I mean, one of every three people in this country have don't attend at all church or synagogue. Uh, yeah, I just think you lead with God, you alienate one-third of the electorate. Let's go to the phone. Here's Rujan. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Candy said principles and policies. Uh, you know, the, the thing about it is I, I, I'm, I'm glad that Donald Trump decided that to to uh, come forward and say he's going to run for president, that's fine. I don't know if the senator is going to do it, that's fine. But we got two years before we get there. My question is, what's, what, what are McConnell and uh, and you know McCaffrey, uh, oh McCartney, McCarthy? What are they going to do? What are they going to do in Congress? How are they going to fight for us? And, and are, are are they going to be just like milk toast? Uh, you know characters of themselves. Uh, McConnell made a comment about, you know, our party is, you know, complaining and, and, and you know, critical of, of the other side of the aisle. I, I, but uh, my thing is that that's what they do to us. That's what they do to us. I'm getting tired of these, these establishment Republicans just going along to get along. I mean, the, the, the Democrats come and they punch you in the face 
Yeah, you know, turn the other cheek, but that's not that, that's that's Christianity. That's not politics. When they punch you, you punch it hard, like uh, like Sean Connery said in the Untouchables. You know, they 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 bring a knife, you bring a gun. They put one of yours in the hospital, you put one of theirs in the morgue. We got to take that attitude. And those guys up there are the, are the face of the American, you know, the, the Republican Party, and they better put their big boy pants on and start fighting like it's a fight. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. You know, to to that point, um, I don't have any idea what what happens in the in the Senate Minority League. I mean, it's not a big deal now because it's the majority. It's not the majority. I mean, there, there was an anticipation of the Republicans being in charge of the Senate, having the majority, uh, being able to appoint committee chairs and whatnot. I'm understanding that McCarthy made a deal with Jordan. There was going to be kind of an uprising amongst the Freedom Caucus in the House, and they weren't going to vote for McCarthy. But but I, I'm understanding that he sat down with Jordan and made some concessions to gain that support. And part of this was investigating Hunter Biden, investigating ballot harvesting, I'm um, investigating January 6th, maybe subpoenaing um, or issuing a subpoena to um, to Nancy Pelosi. I don't know that. I'm not in the caucus. I'm not in the room. But I've got a couple of sources that uh, that led me to believe that you know McCarthy and Jordan made a deal. Out of the deal was McCarthy agreeing to do some of the things that the America Firsters won't done, and that is a full-fledged, a thorough and honest investigation into January 6th and some of the Biden escapades. We'll find out. Back in a minute. Four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. William in McCall. Morning, William. How you doing, Dave? Ken. You know, Ken, you were talking about going to Walmart. Well, the people that goes to Walmart are your older people, your young single women with kids, and young college kids. So, if you're gonna get those kind of people on, you got to offer them what the Democrats is offering them. Uh, free rent, free food, and make sure that the older people understand that you're not going to cut their Social Security or do anything to harm them. Because all you hear every year around voting time is, oh, the Republicans are going to cut your Social Security. Oh, they're going to do this. They're going to do this to the old people. They're going to make y'all young women go to work. They can't pay child care. They got three, four kids. They can't pay child care. How are they going to go to work? If you got three or four kids now, a daycare charges you anywhere from 80 to $120 per child. How are they going to work? So that's, you're right. Go to Walmart, get them people on board. That's the way you got to do it. Well, I mean, that, that's the demo. That's the point I'm trying to make. I mean, Peter Strzok even said that. I mean, Strzok said the deplorables, you can smell them at Walmart. I mean, he, P- Peter Strzok told you. Where they believe the, the the most fertile ground is for um for Republican over uh, the Trump movement, I mean the the America First movement, um, and, and they also told you what the elites thought of those people. Correct, us. Correct. Well, I mean, it, it, I would imagine the elites stumble into Walmart every now and then. <laughs> it's just probably a different version of Walmart than uh, we in South Carolina do. But but yeah, I mean, if we live in the era and age of ballot harvesting, and I think what Republicans and America Firsters have to do. Stop calling it voting irregularities. It's the way they vote in Arizona. It's the way they vote in Pennsylvania. It's allowed in Nevada and California. I mean, there's just a lot of liberal voting laws that have been um, legislated and supported by the judiciary in these states that allow for ballot harvesting. So you can complain, whine, cry, gripe, or you can engage and build an infrastructure that allows you to be competitive in ballot harvesting. 
I mean, it's not going to change. I know I said something this morning. I want to see scrums in nursing homes. <laughs> I want to see Republican canvassers competing with Democrat canvassers. But that's apparently what these states are normalizing. Uh, you can say it was ushered in during COVID. Um, some of the states have normalized this way of voting. That's why we still have a lot of votes that haven't been counted in California. Um, but but we know now what we didn't know yesterday, and that is former President Donald Trump is in the race. He is now officially a candidate for president of the United States. I watched it on television. Fox News Radio's Eben Brown was actually in Miami, was at the announcement. Eben, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. So the uh, the electricity was similar to the ride down the escalator? What, I mean, did it feel different? What was the mood, the sentiment of people in the room when Trump made the announcement? Well, I mean, look, there was a lot of excitement there. I, I wasn't in Trump Tower when the, the famous escalator ride happened, so I, I can't really compare it. But there was certainly a lot of excitement about it. Uh, well, it wasn't much of a surprise to a lot of people. Um, what was uh, different or refreshing or, or interesting was that uh, the tone was uh, much uh, cooler than what uh, the former president normally delivers. This was not an angry tirade. This was not uh, a, uh, a, 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 a bad tone in any way. Uh, it was actually kind of light where it needed to be light. It, uh, he levied criticism at the uh, current president, Joe Biden, but did not fall into derision of Joe Biden. Um, in fact, there was really only one kind of jab taken the entire night uh, that was directed all of us at the, to all of us in the press. He kind of <laughs> he just said, I'm only going to call you fake news just once tonight or something like that. Uh, and it got a lot of laughs, actually. It was, actually, it was quite lighthearted. Even people in the press laughed at that one, which is an accomplishment. Uh, but uh, it, it, uh, it it was a, a well-thought, I think there was a lot of, of well-made thoughts, although some people say it went on a little too long, and maybe that uh, is the case. But uh, but ultimately, I think the tone was something that a lot of people were uh, receptive of. Uh, uh, you know, it, it made a case for returning to his policies, which he had ample proof to show uh, were working before they were done away with uh, unceremoniously and, and rather quickly by the uh, the incoming Biden administration. And uh, that had to do with the the economy, with national security, with border control, uh, highlighting that war is broken out in Europe and there's uh, the threat of war in Taiwan uh, and the like. Uh, and so uh, the, the former president said that uh, this can be fixed and that it, it has to do with uh, with reverting back to policy that works. Hey, but I'm asking you to speculate, which is far. I mean, that's unfair to ask a report. I'm a pundit. I mean, I'm allowed to do that. I'm an opinion monster. I just give opinions. You guys are reporters. There's a certain standard you're held to. But I've argued this morning that Trump can be chemo and cancer almost all in the same speech. I mean, he can be um, the most unregulated dose of chemotherapy in the history of the American political system, and 10 minutes later can be the most cancerous to the American political system. Did you sense that he understands that or the room understands that, that Trump does cut both ways? He brings a lot of baggage to the table, but he does bring an energy that very few politicos have ever brought. Well, I, I think that that is a good way to put it. He brings an energy that uh, few other people have, He's also in the past has been able to temper himself uh, and rise to the occasion. There are people who will say he doesn't always do that when he needs to, but it has been done in the past, and I, I think he did that last night. Like I said, there were there was very little, if any, derision of anyone, and, and conspicuously absent from the text of his speech was the words Ron DeSantis. 
uh, who seems to, uh, you know, based on the past couple of weeks, seems to be his new target, which a lot of people uh, in his orbits were not thrilled to hear. You know, there are uh, a lot of uh, Trump supporters who also have a lot of love for Ron DeSantis. Uh, and in fact, uh, by making those, uh, uh, you know, nasty snide remarks a couple weeks ago, uh, he may have turned a lot of people off out of sympathy for Ron DeSantis. You know, when in 2016, when Trump began his uh, not just his campaign, but uh, his his trademark way of ridiculing his opponents, uh, specifically Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, if you remember little Marco and Lion Ted, um, uh, those were actually rather defensive. Those those two men came for Trump first, and Trump fought back harder and stronger, and and it worked. Um, Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, has not made any attacks towards Donald Trump. Uh, Mr. DeSantis hasn't even announced any kind of run or even an exploratory committee for the presidency. But he stole some of the limelight. Thank you, Evan. Appreciate your time. You got it. That's kind of an interesting take. You know, Rev and I were talking during the break, and I think this is a this is a pretty good analogy. I mean, I want to go back a half step. I mean, before we use the analogy, the I mean, the Herschel Walker race is still pending. And if Republicans could paint the perfect picture, there's a picture of Herschel standing here, Trump standing here, DeSantis standing here, and Kemp standing here. I mean, if we could get those four gentlemen, um, at times they're not gentlemen, but if we could get those four individuals, those four males on the stage at the same time, I think that is a rallying cry. I think that is a, um, awesome. a, a convergence of a lot of different political energies. Now, now once again, the never-Trumper is still the never-Trumper, and that's a conundrum that we're having a lot of trouble dealing with. There's no way, and I said something yesterday that was probably emotionally charged. i got to think about whether I, whether I meant it or not. But I said yesterday I'd rather lose races to Democrats in every state than allow the establishment elite Republican orthodoxies to take over again. I don't know that I mean that, but I have no interest it's 70% of the party acquiescent is 30% of the party and giving in in particular to the 10 or 12% of the 30% that just refuse to be loyal Republicans. In other words, it's our duty to be loyal Republicans when Mitt Romney's on the ballot. It's our duty to be loyal Republicans when John McCain's on the ballot. But it's not your duty to be a loyal Republican when Herschel Walker's on the ballot. It's not your duty to be a loyal Republican when J.D. Vance is on the ballot. You know what I think? I don't think you're a Republican. I think you're a self-serving consultant, more than likely. I think you're somebody who's helped put the deck chairs exactly where the deck chairs need to be, and somebody came along and rearranged, and the movement wants really that 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 you know the the deck chairs to be thrown overboard, and, and you're so bothered by that. I mean, it's self-preservation is what it is, but it's not it's not a belief in ideology. It's not for the betterment of a nation. In other words, seventy percent of America firsters voted for Kemp. They voted for Dewine. Hardly any of the never-Trumpers voted for J.D. Vance, and even fewer in, um, in Georgia. Here's where I've landed. I don't think the Republicans voted for the Democrat in Ohio. I just think they took a pass. They voted for the Democrat in Georgia. I mean, the, the number's indisputable. I mean, there is no way to argue that, that about 8 or 9 or 10% of Republicans voted for Warnock in Georgia to put America first in its place. And, and I, I, for the life of me, I mean, that, that is a struggle. That is an internal squabble that I have with myself. Do I want Democrats to win or do I want to allow 10 or 12% of the party to dictate how the other 70% can kind of operate and function? And, um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced I would rather Democrats be in charge.
than I had Republicans who 12% of the party get to pick or 13 or 14 percent of the party get to pick i understand the never trump i mean i do i i'm i mean i've got friends of mine i mean i've got very good friends of mine who are never trumpers i get it i understand the rationale i understand um the the emotion i understand the the conviction i mean i certainly do i get it but but if you are a republican and you oppose liberal democrat agendas then you've got to vote for the lesser of two evils and I think it's a no-brainer. But but once again, people are emotional. People have these internal convictions, and they don't want to be a part of that. Um, is DeSantis an America firster? I think he is. You know, we're talking about exit ramps. The first exit ramp, I mean, if Trump is the freeway and I'm riding the freeway and I'll, I'll crash and burn or win and glorify with Donald Trump, I mean, he's my guy and I'm not budging. That We're going to the end of the interstate. I mean, we're, we're heading on, what is it, U.S. 1 and Key West? And we're run off of the ocean with or without Donald Trump. The first exit ramp, I think we've identified as Ron DeSantis, right? I mean, that, that's I a so. reasonable exit ramp. Yep. I mean, how many of the never Trumpers get off at DeSantis? Or how many of the never Trumpers hold off and say, no, 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 no. Um, he's too J- much like Trump. Yeah, he's too much like Trump. Uh, is J.D. Vance the next exit on the interstate? I mean, Vance is, is making a name for himself. He wrote this article in the American Conservative. I mean, he's going to be a household name amongst politicos. I mean, we're heading to a world where J.D. Vance is one of the five most prominent Republicans in our world. I mean, I'm sure of that. No doubt about it. Blake Masters was never going to be that. He doesn't have the personality, the charisma, the, the, the compelling life story. Vance has all of that. So I think when you look at the Republican Party today in regards to America first, I think we, nobody questions whether Trump is America first. I mean, he's the godfather of America first. You know, Ron DeSantis appears to be the next best option. J.D. Vance appears to be maybe the next next best option. And, and where do we go from there? I mean, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, uh, Jim Jordan. I mean, there are a lot of other personalities and flavors, but um, but I don't know that any of the never Trumpers would agree until we get to the, the eighth or ninth exit. We get to somebody like Tom Tillis. And I just don't know how much appetite the America Firsters have for that. that, that I mean, that's too much of a hybrid. As far as I'm concerned, let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, when we talk about messaging, I, I think one of, I think it was kind of hit on a little bit earlier, but I'm correct, correct in that you don't have any grandchildren, correct? I do not. And your oldest son is older than when you had him, right? Correct. But country people get married early. We have babies early. My <laughs> boys were kind of, they're a little less country than I am. Yeah, but that number keeps going up. Uh, <laughs> it does. You're right. No question. And, and I get your point. It's funny. But at the same time, um, you know, families now, I don't know who's chaperoning field trips anymore. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's funny. It really is. But who's chaperoning these field trips? Because we have no stay-at-home moms anymore. Uh, my wife was at church recently, and I, I know we're out of the, the mainstream because we go to the church. And she was asked, you know, how many of her friend group are stay-at-home moms? And she could only think of one person. Um, these are the, talking about the destruction of the middle class in the sense of a economic place, I think, speaks to millennials. Because we all remember, you know, we may not have had the mom in particular that chaperoned the trips, but we remembered all the moms that were stay-at-home moms that, that may have kind of been that uh, – uh, that commun- that fostered that sense of community and there was 
we weren't being raised by daycare. I mean, so many children now are being raised by daycare. Um, and uh, that, that, that number on how much daycare costs is actually anywhere between $100 and $200, and it's more on the $200 end on, in Florence. Um, but I think these economic issues, these family issues, I understand the religious aspect may not bode well in, in the Rust Belt, but I can imagine talking about giving people economic security enough where mom or dad can stay home and, and raise a family um, like we remember. Um, and I think those are talking points that we can can drive on. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. And, and, but if you open that bag, uh, that, that can of worms, you, you've got to begin explaining. And this is where, I mean, Jim would understand it and I would understand it because we study some of this sort of stuff. But you're walking into Walmart and you start talking about, you know, middle-class wage earner stagnation. And you start talking about, you know, um, um, soft monetary policy or loose monetary policy or fiat currency. I mean, in essence, the reason the middle class, we're talking about two wage earner families, right? We're not, I mean, very few moms stay at home. I mean, some doctor's wives, some, some lawyer's wives, some business owner's wives. I mean, there, there, there are some people out there making enough income to do whatever they want to do with one family member earning a keep. The majority of people can't do that. They can't go on vacations. They can't buy season tickets to Clemson or South Carolina. They can't have a second vehicle unless both are working. But 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 they, they know that to be a, a practical reality in their life, but they don't understand how politics forced them there. But but if you engage that Walmart um, shopper, you know, that, that America firster, he doesn't know or she doesn't know they're an America firster, but they are. But how do you sit that person down and say, hey, um, how much spare money do you have at the end of the month? None. I don't have any. My husband works as a truck driver. You know, I'm working here as a um, whatever, a secretary at a business. Uh, we don't have any money left over. We're doing all we can. We borrowed money to put our daughter in college. But but if you start, uh, can you sit down with me for 20 minutes and let me explain, um, you know, um, liberal monetary policy? Let me explain um, fiat currency. Let me explain, you know, um, the exportation of, really the exploitation and exportation of middle-class wage earners, globalism, uh, you know, with that, that person, nah, man, I, I came here to get some Diet Pepsi. I mean, I, you know, I came here to get some Fritos and Diet Pepsi and some hamburger meat. I mean, it's so damn expensive now, you can't believe it. I mean, you got to meet people where they are. And you got to accept that the majority of Republican voters ain't going on the National Review or the American Conservative, that they're not going to sit down long enough for you to explain what Jim's trying to break down. And Jim is exactly right. I mean, you know, the... The, the dual-income family is a result of wanting to live a middle-class life in a world controlled by politicians who have allowed inflation to be rampant. They've allowed jobs to be exported. They've allowed the middle class to be exploited in, in some way, shape, or form. But, but it's hard to get that message across. Everybody's not a political scientist. Everybody's not a political junkie. The, the minority of us have, have engaged in that process. And that's the point. I think America first is marketable. But I also think it has to have some intellectual underpinning. I mean, that's why I was for Masters and Vance. And, and you know, and, and to some degree, Oz. Uh, Oz was, I wasn't convinced Oz was an America firster. I mean, I'll say it. I think Oz was an opportunist. But what politician isn't? But he was going to give us the political majority that we needed to advance an agenda or put some committee chairs in, in Republicans' hands. I mean, I, I've said it the whole time, and I think Rev can, Rev can validate. I mean, I, I was always suspicious of Oz in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I mean, I said his name's Dr. Oz, and he's running in Pennsylvania asking, you know, coal miners and steel workers for their— That just sounds odd to me. That, I, I just felt like that was, a, that was a real square peg in a round <laughs> hole. 
Um, I knew that Blake Masters was wonkish. I mean, I knew that, but I felt that Carrie Lake's charisma, her her talent as a communicator, would allow her to win by four or five points, and Masters would really be in the ball game if that was the case. Now we were we were you know wrong. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Something happened, and we're still trying to figure out exactly uh, what happened. But but I think what what Jim is saying. I mean, we're, we're all saying a lot. We're saying the same thing in a lot of different sorts of ways. There has to be an agenda that that advances the American family and worker that puts their life in a better standing. It's not the government's job to take care of families. It's not the government's job to take care of workers. But it's not the government's job to discourage the formation of families. It's not the government's job to send, you know, the potential wage increases to places that, you know, um, bill widgets cheaper because they violate um, human rights laws and, and labor standards. And that's, I mean, to me, that's the crux of the argument. How do we empower the American family and the American worker. I mean, we've got to solidify that. We've got to convince, you know, the majority of Americans in the middle that we are your best choice. I mean, if you're fighting the good fight every day, trying to advance a better life for you and your family, this party is going to be on your side far more times than our competitors are. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, you're on fire, Ken. Uh, that's all I got to say. Uh, but where did you get that moniker of Pope of Pamplico? I, I think I somebody thinking. I think somebody um did that for me. I don't I don't remember to me ever referring <laughs> that's a, that's to myself as the Pope of, of Pamplico. That's <laughs> folks poking fun at you um and, and, and trying to pretend they're your friend and advocate. <laughs> well, I would think you were more of a, a, a Pontifex, a bridge builder, uh, that uh, I, I like to think of you more that way. And I think you've done an excellent uh, job as far as doing analysis and an analysis of the problem that's facing the uh, uh, Republican Party. And uh, that uh, now the solution has to be worked out, but you've got a uphill battle because the Democrats are masters at using fear to herd the the cats all into their lane. Uh, they're they're just uh, uh, you know we're gonna kill them. Republicans gonna kill your children. They're gonna take they go. They're going to starve to death, grandma and grandpa. They're going to uh, do this and they're going to do that. And all the time slipping stuff in like NAFTA. Well, nobody knows what NAFTA means. Nobody understood what that meant until the results hit. And uh, that that's something that you de- deal with. And, fit, and I think you got a handle on it. Uh, most people don't understand the implications of fiat currency and uh, and how that affects their lives, but they understand when they can't buy a hamburger or they can't buy enough macaroni and cheese to feed their children, and that that's a problem uh, that I don't know we have to address. But the, the thing about NAFTA is set them up with a really good situation because that did away with a lot of the high-paying jobs that allowed one parent to stay at home, take care of the children, raise the children. And uh, that 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 did as much to damage the American family as anything. But I think you're on the right track if you can solve that uh, problem of how to get more people on board. 
and ameliorate the fear that uh, Democrats are using to uh, drive the populace into their uh, lane. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. When you look at a lot of the Democrats' advantages, let's take abortion as an example. Um, I mean, you know, I'm out of the mainstream in abortion. I'm convinced of that. I mean, my belief on abortion is out of the mainstream in America. I mean, we talked yesterday a little bit about some of these states that had uh, abortion laws on the books, and I mean, not a single state, and we're talking about Montana, Kentucky, not a single state agreed to place stricter limits on a woman's right to have an abortion. Kentucky and Montana made it easier for a woman to have an abortion. Now conservatives wanted what? The states to decide. So so in when it comes to abortion, but what the Democrats do, guys, is convince the masses, the, the uninformed, the independent voter, the Seinfeld viewer, they convince them that the Republicans are trying to take something from you. I mean, that's a pretty profound strategy when you think about it. I mean, nobody wants something taken from them. Ballot harvesting is why, because the Republicans are trying to take your right to vote away. Abortion, the, abor- the, the, the Republicans are trying to take a woman's right away to choose. I mean, it's easy to verbalize that. It's easy to quantify that. It's easy to kind of get your arms around. I mean, I don't know many Republicans who want to take a woman's rights away. I mean, they, they believe somebody has to protect the unborn, but that's not the argument. And the Democrats always couch it in such an aggressive, insinuating fashion that you got to figure out a way to wiggle off the hook. In other words, we're not talking about innocent life. We're talking about a woman's right to choose. And I think the Republicans have done a lousy job in responding to that, I don't want to say incriminating, but, but that very accusatory stance. Um, why would you vote for the Republican when they're trying to stop you from having a right that you deserve? You deserve a right to decide your health care. You deserve a right to decide whether you want to be a mom or not. Well, I mean, all of a sudden, you're, you're behind the eight ball to begin with. So you throw in at the last second, well, I mean, I think somebody has to advocate for the unborn. I mean, that, that is a very reasonable position. I can't believe, I mean, if I, if I believe this, then I got to leave and find me another country. I'm like Springsteen. I'm going to New Zealand or somewhere. I mean, if America is to the point where it cares not at all for a, an innocent life, then I'm living in the wrong country. But, 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 but the debate has been fought under their terms. And that term is what, Reb? It's a choice a woman deserves to be able to make. It's not, it's not killing a baby. It's not, you know, protecting innocent life. The woman deserves to make that choice. Damn it. And the Republicans are trying to stop you from being allowed to make that choice. Um, the, you have a right to vote. I mean, I don't care how rich or poor, what color, what religion, what ethnicity, you have a right to vote. And the Republicans are trying to take that right away from you. I mean, I don't know a single Republican in my ecosystem or my, my, my orbit that, that genuinely wants somebody to not cast a ballot. I think the more informed ballots cast, the better the country is. But, but I think everybody has a, a right to cast a ballot. But are we going to round up votes? Are we going to harvest votes? Are we going to few, uh, nursing homes and, and fill out ballots for people with Alzheimer's? Yeah, I mean, that's what we're doing. But that's not what the debate is. The debate is Republicans trying to take someone's right away. So all of a sudden, we've legitimized ballot harvesting. We've normalized abortion. How can we normalize abortion in this country? Explain that to me. I mean, how, how can we argue that it's okay and not up for debate as we kill millions of babies. I mean, that just that blows me away. I mean, once again, I'm more than willing to have a debate. And I think there's a very warranted debate and a very uh, 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 conscious debate 
and, and a moral debate and a spiritual debate at some times about when, where, how, why. But, but that's not the debate we're having. The, the American people have been convinced that if Roe v. Wade gets overturned and Dobbs becomes law of the land, the Republicans are trying to try to stop every woman from ever having an abortion. They've just done a better job of messaging. Now, now, I have Republican friends, when I say they do a better job of messaging, they'll say, duh. I mean, 90% of the media is in their hip pocket. So certainly if 90% of the hip are in the hip pocket of your, you know, advocating or solidifying your stance or message, it's going to be an uphill slog. But, but we've got to accept that that is reality. I mean, I said this morning that the only person more excited than the Trump voter today by Trump's announcement yesterday is the employees at CNN because they were about to lay <laughs> off 10,000 people. They'll probably keep them now because Trump will keep them employed. They've got a job to do, I mean, it, it's, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, um, it's a holy, an unholy alliance that um, Trump has with, with the mainstream media. They love to hate him. And, you know, it's, it's very profitable. It's very um, it's good for business when someone like Trump um, shows up. But when you look at ballot harvesting and abortion, I mean, those were two big issues in the 2022 midterms, and the Democrats won those debates. They convinced the American public that abortions want to stop every woman from ever being allowed to make a decision about having a baby or not. I don't know a single Republican. Ah, that's unfair. I do know some. I know some that believe if a woman was raped, she should carry that baby to term. I'm not one. If a woman's in an incestuous relationship, she should be forced to carry that baby to term. I'm not one. Um, I'm willing to debate, uh, you know, conception and when and uh, 13 weeks, 12 weeks, 10 weeks, uh, 15 weeks. I think there's a very um, legitimate and moral debate to have about that. But, but to Mike's point, the Democrats do a good job of stoking fear and animus toward Republicans. Young people are what? Very impressionable. I didn't say dumb. I didn't say dumb at all. I don't think I'm any smarter now than I was then. I'm a lot more experienced. Experience is uh, expensive. I mean, hard lessons cost a lot of money. You, you learn things as you progress through life. You learn things as you get older. You get more savvy and wiser and, and more astute to what the BS is and what it's not. But why do young people vote overwhel overwhelmingly for Democrats? Because they've been convinced those Republicans are trying to take something from you. And we've got to combat that in some way, shape, or form. And I don't think you do it with Mitch McConnell. I think you do it with somebody who has some, I don't want to say celebrity standing, but somebody who has some, I don't know, some, um, so some uh, I mean, Carrie Lake. I mean, she's a, she's a generational communicator. I mean, she's, she's going to lose. She's not going to be the governor of Arizona, but she may run against cinema. I mean, that, you know, I can see that coming. I can see the GOP recruiting Carrie Lake Tone down the denialism. I mean, tone down the election was stolen. There, there's kind of a sliding scale on this. I've looked and I know enough about it now. The more you talked about that, the less you perform. You can believe it with every fiber of your being, but the more you incorporate that into your speech and as part of your campaign, the, you, you begin to lose independence. I mean, you really do. I mean, you can say, I have questions about the election of 2020. People are cool with that. 57% of Americans have questions about the 2020 election. But the next step is, I believe the election was stolen. And the next step is, I'm not going to talk about the future until we address the 2020 election and the fact that it was stolen. The independents fly. I mean, they just leave in droves. They just don't want to relitigate that. They're looking for somebody to inspire. They're looking for somebody to articulate an argument on ballot harvesting or an argument on abortion. And, and the media is not going to help us. I mean, the media will never, ever help us. 
talk radio and Fox News, to some degree, are the only advocates we have in conservative land, in limited government land, in personal responsibility and liberty land. That's just the cold, hard truth. Whine, cry, complain, or build a model that deals with it. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Who is this and where are you calling from? Okay, Freehold's getting Rev had to step out for a second. Rev's got some business to take care of in Sumter or Orangeburg. He's on the way there now, um, so he won't be with us the last hour. We won't miss him, um, except we'll have to logistically work through some of what Freehold have to free Freehold and I have to negotiate on getting people on the line. So who is this and where are you calling from? This is Daphne and Dylan. Hey, Daphne, how are you? Good morning. Hey, the, I'm all right. The floor Can is yours. Did you hear about the Harvard report that had 38 world democracies uh, and we ranked number 37 in election integrity? I did. Uh, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it's of, it's pretty astounding that the most developed nation in, Amer- in the world has the um, – I mean, we've lost the trust of our people. I mean, fifty-seven percent of Americans believe that we got to do a better job of conducting elections. Next to the bottom, in in thirty-eight. I mean, you know, uh, you were discussing ballot harvesting. Chain of custody is 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 illegal. And I mean, if you break a chain of custody in court, it it that those case out. Why is it not so in elections? Uh, the red states like Georgia still have not fixed that chain of custody problem. Uh, also, I wanted to say that we found out in 2010 and 2012 that there were a large majority of sewer rats. I don't call them swamp creatures anymore. They're sewer rats in both parties. And uh, Graham, McCain, and Rubio, in fact, when Barack was president, helped him give birth to ISIS, and they funded him. And Graham, Lindsey Graham's letter to me supporting cap and trade let me know exactly what he was with intimidating uh, industries and laundering money back into the pockets of politicians was the only reason for cap and trade. And uh, most recently, when he spent the weekend on Joe Manchin's boat and came back, and he, with 18 of his fellow rhinos, signed on to a trillion-dollar-plus bill to expand Biden's plan to force us to suffer with higher food prices, uh, lack of, of, of fuel, gas, and electricity. There is no faith at all in my whole body that McConnell, McCarthy, or the other school rats will do anything different than they've done all along, which is claimed even after we gave them the majority that their hands are tied. So there you go. Okay? Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. I mean, I think we owe Kevin McCarthy a chance. I mean, I don't have a lot of faith in McCarthy. I have no faith in McConnell. But I think we owe McCarthy at least the opportunity to prove to us that he's going to operate a little bit differently than the past speaker, Paul Ryan, or, or John Boehner, when he was um, speaker when the Republicans had the majority. Um, I mean, I, once again, I don't have a lot of faith in McCarthy for being truly an America first or in advancing the agenda that the base wants advanced. 
but but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And from what I'm gathering, um, some of my sources, for what it's worth, there was kind of a um a deal struck between Jordan, who is a a very vocal and leading member of the Freedom Caucus, and McCarthy on what the priorities would be heading into the session in uh, in January of 2023. Um, maybe we can get Russell Fry on, you know, sooner than later to discuss what he thinks need to be some of the uh, priorities of the um. You know, now, now we got a speaker, uh, and we're going to have a majority. Uh, how big a majority, I don't know. We'll see at the end. Um, but but what will be the issues they address first? Are they going to address um, the, the you know, the January 6th commission? See, I would leave the January 6th commission in place. I mean, it doesn't look like you're crying over spilled milk. It doesn't look like you're trying to rehash the past. I mean, there's still an investigation about January 6th. I think January 6th um, committee gives you an opportunity to go further down the road of ballot harvesting and, you know, what happened to the 2020 presidential election because the insurrection, so they say, was uh, it was kind of rest and residue of not believing a, a, a vote was legitimate. I mean, when Trump had the, you know, gave the speech and they all marched to the Capitol and, and the violence occurred, a, a lot of that, the genesis of all of that was a belief that the election was not fair and square. So if you reform a committee... It looks like you're revisiting days gone by. You're trying to hash out um, old squabbles and battles. But the January 6th commission is still in place. So let Jim Jordan chair the commission. Let whomever the Democrats choose as their minority leader choose their members. I don't care who it is. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I think that's the only way you get a fair representation of fact is the Democrats are allowed to put who they want to put on that committee. The Republicans are in the majority. You'll have Jim Jordan. You'll have some others that, that are forceful in, in believing certain things about the 2020 election. But here's where I've landed when it comes to 2020 election. Remember one morning when I said they stole it fair and square? I mean, as humorous and, and sarcastic as I was trying to be, it was a little bit prophetic. Because once again, the, the COVID regulations that were, were, were oversight for the 2020 presidential election has now been normalized. It's been adopted by about 13 states to some degree. To some extent, 13 states have normalized the way we voted in 2020 because of a pandemic. Most of those states that we consider to be swing states have had a lot of ballot harvesting at the center of one candidate doing better than the polls. I, I said a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, uh, what, what ballot harvesting does is turn a registered voter into a likely voter, turns a, uh, an unregistered voter into a registered voter. I mean, it kind of it, it ups the ante of the likelihood somebody is going to participate in said election. So, so when I go back and do somewhat of a postmortem on what happened in the 2022 midterms, I mean, th- th- there, there are a lot of reasons the Republicans underperformed. I went back and looked last night. New York Times, might have been 538, had a longitudinal chart. Um, and it's basically a graph. It's, it's correlating graphs. It's got um, longitudinal lines. And when I mean, there's kind of a, a convergence of 44% approval of a president, 8%. I mean, there's just no way you don't lose 20 seats. I mean, that's kind of the minimum. 44% approval rating for the president. That's kind of the high water mark. It's closer to 42 8% inflation. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a wave election. That's a pretty good predictor of a wave election. It didn't happen. 
the, the two things that I don't think the longitudinal graph or chart can, can account for is ballot harvesting. I mean, abortion was an oddity. I mean, that, that would have been kind of the brush fire uh, that, that we didn't see coming. We thought abortion had its day. We thought abortion, when, when Roe v. Wade was overturned and liberals were excited and, and motivated to go vote, I mean, I thought that died down a bit. I think I was wrong. I mean, I think I stand to be corrected in believing that abortion would wane. Uh, the, the energy for someone to go cast a ballot because they believe some Republicans in certain states were going to limit a woman's right to choose. I mean, that sold. I mean, that really did give the Democrats their due. They did a good job of motivating people who believe a woman should have a right to choose at any point during their pregnancy to abort a baby. Um, I didn't see that coming. But I did see um, the candidate quality. I mean, all of us had to question. I mean, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, I said that 100 times. Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania sounds like an uphill climb to me. Why? I don't know. His name's Dr. Oz and he's running in Pennsylvania. That just leads me to believe there's an issue there with candidate quality. There's no doubt Trump is the chemo and cancer. But I mean, there is no doubt about it. Anybody that doesn't say, anybody that doesn't admit that, that Trump cuts both ways is just not being sincere. I mean, that is a bit cultish. I mean, if you look at Trump as a savior and someone who doesn't bring any baggage to the table and hitting both cancer and chemo, you're, 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 you're a little bit blinded. I mean, that, that's being, that, that's being, that, that is being a bit cultish to go down that road. I mean, you got to accept Trump for what he is. He's a controversial political figure. But, but the one thing that I think I have a little more clarity on today than I did after 2020 is the ballot harvesting. I mean, I think I understand now the mechanisms of which the Democrats um, turned, once again, unregistered voters into voters, unlikely voters into likely voters. And the majority of polling that we put any credence in is amongst registered voters. So if, if Trafalgar had Kerry Lake up four in the latest, uh, you know, the poll right before the primary, excuse me, the general, and she loses by less than one point, how was Trafalgar all four and a half points? How was Rasmussen off four points? How was the ABC, NBC News off, you know, three and a half points? You didn't see the canvases. I mean, you didn't see the ballot harvesting. You didn't. You, there's no way to predict that. And, and it'll be interesting. Will pollsters now, as part of their model, incorporate Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Georgia, ballot harvesting? How do you do that? I mean, how do you, how do you account for the the non-registered voter becoming a registered voter, the unlikely voter becoming a likely voter, because that absolutely happened. I mean, it's also undeniable that 9%, 10%, 11% of Republicans voted for the Democrats. Ah, that's unfair. About about 12 to 15% didn't vote for the Republican. Of that 12 to 15%, roughly half, maybe a little better than half, chose to vote for the Democrats. There are a lot of people who voted for Kemp and Warnock. I mean, that's unforgivable to me, but someone has a right to cast their ballot as they see fit. But but that absolutely happened in in um in Arizona. It happened a little bit in Nevada, but I think Georgia, what was the was really the um the most apparent example of someone holding a grudge against Donald Trump. And when we talk about Trump announcing, once again, ballot harvesting. I think was the Democrats saving grace. President's approval rating under 45, inflation over eight, 
right track, wrong track, 75. I mean, that, that kind of leads you down the road of a wave election. Historically speaking, that is a wave election. I mean, that data is indisputable until you throw in Trump and you say, okay, he's controversial. He'll be a drag in some places. He'll be, he'll help in some places. He'll hurt in other places. Um, and I think you account for that candidate quality, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. I think you scratch your head. That's asking a lot of the voters of Pennsylvania abortion. I didn't see that coming. I was wrong, but I still go back to, to, to ballot harvesting. I mean, that, that, that was the most important issue that we didn't account for that. I'm not sure we know how to count uh, for in the future. Here's what we thought as Republicans. We thought we had shined such a bright light and raised enough. You know what? That the Democrats wouldn't try to do it again. We thought they were cheating. We thought they were breaking rules. I'm not sure they are. We got to stop saying voting irregularities and the election was stolen. These states have normalized COVID voting laws and it allows for ballot harvesting. I said this morning, if the Republicans are serious about winning Pennsylvania, winning Nevada, winning Arizona, we'll have scrums in senior homes, scrums for ballots. I mean, there'll be a Republican operative trying to harvest ballots. There'll be a Democrat operative trying to harvest ballots, and they'll fight over the person who's had Alzheimer's for six or seven years, doesn't know any of their loved ones, can't recognize, you know, what a meal looks like, uh, being fed through a tube. But they're going to cast a ballot for a Democrat more likely now than a Republican. Uh, we need to change that. Now, a lot of Republicans, I don't want to be a part of that. Okay, you'll lose. You'll lose. That's the new rule. That's the new world. That's where we are. Ballot harvesting is not illegal. I don't think it's the best way to pick a president. I don't think it's the best way to pick a Congress. I don't think it's the best way to pick a mayor or city council or county councilman. But in these swing states, that's what the Democrats have done. And you can accept that as reality, or you can pout and scream and write letters to the editor, and, and, and you, or you can fight back. And I just think that we have to fight back. And I think the way to fight back, once again, I said it a little bit whimsically this morning, find the Walmarts. Position Republican operatives at Walmart. About 200 million people go to Walmart a week. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? We're a nation of 330 million people. Walmart has about 200 to 210 customers per week go into their stores in America. About 280 million globally, but about 200 million weekly shoppers at Walmart. Isn't that what Peter Strzok said? I mean, remember Strzok's text about the deplorables? He could smell them at Walmart. I mean, that's the new demographic. It's not those reading the National Review. It's not those reading the Weekly Standard. It's not reading the Wall Street Journal business section. I mean, historically, that's been the Republican base. But it's changed. America First is about the working class. That, that's where its growth potential is. Um, it, it performed amazingly well with Hispanics. It did better with African Americans. It's doing better with the white working class. It's not doing so well with young people. It's not doing so well with single moms. It's not doing so well with unmarried females. But the majority of people going to Walmart weekly believe in the concept of America first. They're not listening to talk radio. Once again, they're not studying, you know, what a pundit said about this election or the last election. But, but you need to have a message and you need to meet them where they are. And I think where they are is Walmart. Peter Strzok is exactly right. Now, now, he said it in a very condescending way. You can smell these people at Walmart. The deplorables. Hillary Clinton meant exactly, meant exactly what, she, what she said. But I think if the Republicans invest 
in an infrastructure that engages those white working class, Hispanic working class, African-American working class people exactly where they are and convince them that there's one agenda, one campaign that has their best interest at heart, and it's the Republican brand, and you sign up voters, you get databases of, um, of contact information, and you follow up. And I went and did the math during the break. Um, the next election will be decided by probably in the neighborhood of 100,000 votes. I mean, somebody will win. The Democrat will probably win by a couple of million votes, maybe three million, maybe four million votes. But at the end of the day, there will be 100,000 people in Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada. Let's say 200,000. I mean, somebody will win those one, two, three, four, five, six, seven states by 200,000 votes. Let's say you took a ballot harvester and you paid him 20 bucks a ballot. That's $4 million. What is $4 million in a multi-billion dollar campaign for president? It's nothing. It's chump change. That's what the Democrats are doing. I mean, I can't prove they're paying people to go harvest ballots, but they are. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, when Zuckerberg invested somewhere north of $400 million, a little less than $450 million, I mean, do you think he did it to preserve democracy? I mean, do you think he did it because he's more patriotic than you are? No. He wants Democrats to win, and he put his money where his mouth is. And now the Republicans have to figure out a way to, to, um, to address that, to respond to that. And if 200,000 people in these seven states are going to decide who the president of the United States is going to be, why not pay a Republican operative $20 for every ballot they harvest? I mean, that's $4 million bucks in seven states. Once again, chump change at the end of the day. The Republicans cannot count on any longer big election day turnouts. That's just not reality. That's Sears and Pennies in an Amazon era. We're in the Amazon era of elections. They're won before the election. They're won by harvesting ballots in swing states. And the Democrats are light years better than the Republicans at harvesting ballots. I didn't say stealing elections. I said harvesting ballots in these swing states that allow the harvesting of ballots to take place. It's time for the Republicans to respond. Put boots on the ground, build an infrastructure, and have scrums and nursing homes in these seven swing states battling. I mean, it's sad to say, but you're, you're, you're battling for the uninformed vote. You're battling for the vote that really and truly America would be better off if they weren't casting ballots. But it's the hand you're dealt. They're playing it better than we are. Take a break. Back in just a few. You know, one of the storylines we'll hear a lot of over the next uh, several months until someone else announces. I mean, I would imagine after the first of the year, uh, maybe February, uh, probably March. March, someone else will announce. Uh, it could be Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence. It could be a more establishment-oriented Republican. I mean, I doubt DeSantis will announce until maybe a year from the primary. So May or June is when we'll probably hear from the DeSantis camp. I mean, he'll form an exploratory committee. And there's a lot of things. Two years in a political life is a lifetime. I mean, a lot, can, things can, a lot of things can happen in two years. But I've always been told from the experts. I'm not an expert. I was a pretty good candidate, not as much some of the, uh, you know, some of the guru behind the scenes. But I've always been led to believe that, that the, the art of politics is when you match the man or woman to the moment. That there's a, that, that's when kind of the perfect storm takes place. Um, I mean, there, there's no doubt Trump's moment was six years ago. I mean, America was desperately seeking for something different, something unique, something that, um, I mean, we as Republican primary voters, we had walked to the edge of the cliff, but we never jumped. I mean, we considered 
you know, Ron Paul. We toyed around with um, Pat Buchanan. But it was always in our nature, in our DNA to kind of back up and, nah, Bush, nah, Dole, nah, Clay. You know, I mean, it was, it was a safe choice. So, so when you look at the man or woman of the moment, I mean, there's no denying that Trump was, I mean, exactly aligned, perfectly aligned six years ago. Um, have the nation's voters moved on? I mean, some early signs are indicating problems. But once again, two years is a lifetime. Can Trump control his message? Can he discipline himself? Um, I mean, his unpopularity, he's always had unfavorables, but he's going to be that top candidate. I mean, Trump can have unfavorables in the 40s. He can't have them in the 60s. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, they're, they're certainly, well, I'll say realities. We thought a president couldn't have an approval rating of 42 and a wrong track of 75 and not get slaughtered in midterms, but Biden proved that to be um, not the case. But, but when you look at Trump's disapprovals, or excuse me, his unfavorables, see, disapproval is what kind of job are you doing? I approve of the job you're doing. I disapprove of the job you're doing. The favorables matter more. You know what the favorables imply? Do I like you or not? Will I give you the benefit of the doubt or not? Do I find it to be good and decent and sincere a person? There's a forgiveness the voter has. They'll forgive you for the job you're doing if they like you as a person. So, so Trump's disapprovals don't worry me. No, but that's policy. You can address that. The unfavorables, do people like me or not? And I think there's a, there's a universe of people in America who strongly admire and support this former president, but, but there's also that much energy who disapprove, excuse me, who find him unacceptable and, un, and, and have an unfavorable view of him. So he's got to get that number down. I mean, it's 58, 59, 60%. He's got to get that number to somewhere in the mid-40s. I mean, it would be better in the low 40s, but, but if he can get it south of 50, if the unfavorables are 47, 48, I mean, that's still a high number, but it's, uh, I mean, it's not impossible to navigate that complexity because, once again, he's a unique political political figure. But, but his, I mean, if his unfavorables are 59 or 60, I mean, they, they've got to take that into account and they've got to address that in some way, shape, or form. Once again, disapproval is about policy and the job you're doing. Favorable, unfavorable, do I like you or not? And once people make their mind up they don't like you anymore, it's hard to get back in good standing with those voters. Uh, we got somebody on the phone? Okay, let's go to the call. Who is this and where are you calling from? Jeff from Florence. Hey, Jeff, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Um, yeah, so uh, I did uh, want to pick up our call yesterday about um, does the uh, does the party double down on Trump? He announced. Last I think he's kind of forced our hand, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that the next logical question is: You're going to go through a primary. Do you think Trump will stop? I don't know, Jeff. I mean, at times I hear, and I, all I, I'm a speculating, and it's not total speculation because I got people that, that are close to that universe. I mean, they're not in his inner circle, but they're in his outer inner circle. That they are encouraged at times and discouraged at other times. That, that there are meetings and, and gatherings they have where they believe they've convinced him to, to, to pump the brakes a little bit. That, that he's got a problem with likability and favorable ratings. We just talked about a second ago. But then they'll go back in a meeting a week later, and they're as discouraged as they were encouraged the week before. And I just think that's what you get with him. I think I think I, I do a pretty good job by saying he is both cancer and chemo 
very often in the same speech. Yeah, um, he he definitely uh, has the attention of of a, a segment of the party, um, and and here's the the, the problem: he's not going to give it up. Um, you 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 know he is uh, a narcissist of world class level, and most politicians are. Not he's not unique, um, but there in the past there's been some coalescence around candidates and some introspection of why why did we end up with this cycle going so badly? He doesn't get that. He doesn't see you know that. He was a drag on the on the party this time, and he's he he won't believe the real information in front of him. You know, when when his daughter and Jared they've got they've got enough Saudi money that they don't they don't need to go back in into Washington to get any more. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they they walked out of the last four years with uh, two point six billion dollars. Um, so they didn't really sacrifice going to Washington. Um, they're not, they don't want to be involved. His family is starting to try and walk away, but will the Republican voters walk away? Will his diehard core voters leave him when he doesn't win the nomination, when he drags down the party, will he go third party? That's, that's what you have to be careful for. Well, I mean, but but, uh, but if DeSantis decides not to run, Trump's the nominee. Um, you, you really think that they're not going to um, try and kneecap him and take him out? You're talking about Trump. I'm talking about the Republican Party. Yeah, but I mean, the, the I mean, Trump is the dominant figure in the Republican Party by far. I mean, the only person that rivals Trump is DeSantis. Nobody in the Republican Party cares what Mitch McConnell says unless they live in Washington. I mean, every Republican in Washington cares what McConnell says. Every Republican in Washington cares what the establishment says. But when you get in flower country, and you know this, I mean, Trump is the 800-pound gorilla. The only person that has a chance to beat Trump in a primary is a J.D. Vance or a Ron DeSantis, someone who America Firsters believe is is authentic and real and on their team, but but voters don't find so unfavorable. I mean, that that's the conundrum. And I'll accept to say it's a conundrum. It's going to be interesting. I mean, as a radio show host or seeing an employee, I'm glad he's running because it, it gives me a lot of fodder and a lot of conversation piece. But but I said it before you called or while you were on the phone, he's got to address the unfavorable rating. If his disapproval was 58, I'm not that concerned with that. But once people make their mind up, they don't like you. It's hard to change their mind. And he's got to get that number from 59, 60% to somewhere around 45%, and that's a heavy lift for someone like him. He's not likely to be conciliatory. He's not likely to be humble. He's not likely to to do sort of an adjustment and say, hey, um, you know, a lot of those things I did back then, I regret. I shouldn't have done them. Uh, We need to move forward and not worry about all that. I mean, that's just not, that's not who he is. Now, if he does that, if he does the unexpected, I, I think he has a chance to regenerate some loyalty amongst Republican voters but that's highly unlikely. It's 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 extremely unlikely to the point where this goes back to um, you mentioned the right candidate at the right time. Donald Trump didn't have film on him. He was something different um, in 2015, 16. 
Um, this there's enough film on him now that he's not bringing back the Republicans that are, frankly, just embarrassed and 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 disgusted. Um, they will vote for Warnock over uh, Herschel Walker because Herschel Walker is Trump. Um, you know, they they will uh, split the tickets. You're seeing it. it, it ballot harvesting. That answers some of your questions. It doesn't answer how you get Republicans to vote against Republican candidates and go for Democrats. And that's what happened. Yeah, about 9%. I've done the math. It's about nine, about six, about 18 or 19% walked away from the Republican. Forget independents. I mean, they're going to do their thing. Independents vote this way one cycle, yeah. that way another cycle. But you've got to have an excess of 90% of your base voting for you. And Walker didn't. Vance did, but Vance still trailed DeWine by about six percentage points. They just didn't vote for the Democrat. They they, they didn't vote for Vance, but they didn't vote for the Democrat. In Georgia, they voted for Kemp, and they voted for Warnock. About 9% of Republican voters voted for Kemp and Warnock. And that's hard to win when, when that many— I mean, you can live with them taking a pass. You can't live with them voting for the competitive for the competing party. And, and when you look at J.D. Vance, and he won his race, uh, Tim Ryan, again, a model of how you should handle defeat. Um, the Republicans should really take a look at, at, at what, um, what grace and loss looks like with Tim Ryan. Um, J.D. Vance won that race. That's, that should be the biggest indicator of where the problem lies. J.D. Vance who's everything you you put on a pedestal for the America First movement, underperformed so badly because of sitting on that stage with Donald Trump. But they didn't vote for the Democrat in Ohio. They did in Georgia. That's the concern I have. A, a, a Republican has the right. I mean, they got a right to do anything they want to do. You do, I do, we all do. I can live with a Republican saying I'm not voting for Vance because he's tainted by Trump. I accept that. I know that's in the devil's brew of politics. I can't get to the point of understanding how someone in Georgia could vote for Kemp and Warnock. I mean, I really, I don't, I don't have the right to question somebody's commitment to Republicanism or the Republican Party. But, but it concerns me that that there are Republicans out there that are so enraged by Trump being a central figure that they'll just not take a pass. They'll vote for a liberal Democrat. I mean, that, you know, but that's it's, that's our battle. I mean, that's that's not the Democrats' problem. That's something the Republicans have to say grace over. Yeah, it, and, and it's not that they're enraged with Trump. They're just frankly afraid of Trump. They're afraid of the America First movement. They're afraid of MAGA. They're afraid of what's next with policy. Listen, Republicans. If you were to do a poll today, how many Republicans are in favor of what of, of Dobb overturning? Roe v. Wade. Oh, 70% of Republicans. Kansas didn't say that. Who now? Kansas, the state of Kansas. Yeah, but you're right. That. You're right. But, but I've seen the polling. I mean, I've seen Republican primary voters polled. It's about 70% in support of, of overturn. Excuse me? You trust any of that? Well, but I trust it as much. I mean, I, I trust a lot. You know, do, do I trust the polls? I don't trust it to be 70-30 wrong. I mean, I don't think it's 50-50. I think most Republicans believe that the states have a right to decide, you know, when a woman should be allowed to have an abortion or not. Um, Kentucky and Montana, every every proposal or ballot question that we voted on in the midterms advanced a woman's right to choose. I expected that in California. I expected that 
in New Jersey. I didn't expect it in Kentucky. I didn't expect it in Montana. But but apparently, you know, in, in, in even conservative states, even red states, believe that a woman has a right to, you know, to make a choice no matter what time in her pregnancy she chooses to make that choice. I said it earlier, Jeff, I'm out of the mainstream on abortion. I'm convinced of that. I mean, I, yeah, I'm more you, pro-life I mean, than the average American. Yeah, it, 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 and listen, it's, it's, if, if, the, if the traditional Republican Party and Donald Trump didn't show up and up, up in the apple cart, that Supreme Court makeup would have never ended up this way, and, and, and Dobbs would have never, ever gotten the votes to pass to overturn Roe v. Wade. I'll agree with That's you. That's how the Republican Party has existed with – they they used it. They uh, It was a talking point for them. It was a big campaign push, just like the Democrats used Social Security. Republicans used abortion. That issue, instead of being a positive for Republicans – is now the anchor that's dragging. Totally agree with you. And I said on this show many times, can the Republicans take yes for an answer? Up until now, they've not been able to. Take a break. Thank you, Jeff. Take a break. You know, we get about two tail Ken calls after Jeff calls. They want to know why I don't blast him or why I don't attack him. That's not what I'm in the business of doing. I have ideas and opinions. You have ideas and opinions. We give a phone number. Um, Jeff listens. He disagrees with a lot of what I saw uh, say. And what I believe and stand for, he calls in and, and represents his opinion in a respectful way. I'm not going to blow a guy uh, off like that. I'm not going to just absolutely try to destroy someone verbally. I mean, to me, that's a bully. I mean, Jeff has a few moments. I have four hours every day. But I mean, that's not a, I mean, that, to me, I'm perceived as a bully when I know I, I mean, I can always get the last word. I always have the biggest microphone and I'm not going to abuse that privilege. Now you have a phone number that you're aware of and you can call. And you can address whatever Jeff said the way you choose to. That's the beauty of what we do. That's what I argue. It's still the last bastion of fair and free thinking. It's the last bastion of allowing someone to express himself or herself as she chooses and somebody call later and say, I agree or disagree. I mean, it, sometimes it's civil. Sometimes it's not very civil. But I think the last thing I need to be known as is kind of an airwaves bully. You know, to cut a guy off and I'm always getting the last word and I shut. No, I'm not doing that. I mean, I, I speak my mind, I allow you to speak your mind, and we're always, always going to keep doing that. I want to give you some good news before we get out of here. The news of the day, obviously, is Donald Trump has announced he's running for president again. There is a historical precedent. Grover Cleveland ran and won in 1884, ran for re-election in 88, lost 1888, and then he ran again in 1892 and won. So Trump would not be. I mean, he can't say... You know, I'm the only one to ever do this because someone um, has before. But there is a changing happening in America today that I think will advantage Republicans in the distant future. I mean, this is a generational shift. I told Rev this morning when we got here, you know, California has 55 electoral votes. New York has 29. Texas has 38. I think I'll live long enough to see Texas have the same number of electoral votes that California, one half of the homeless people in America are in California, one third of the Social Security, excuse me, the Medicare, I'm sorry, the Medicaid recipients are in California. I mean, it's a uh, 27 percent. Uh, I mean, it, it's got all sorts of issues in California. I'm thinking about the 27 percent of um, 27 percent of all crimes committed in America are committed. I mean, it's a crazy, crazy state. It's a nation in its own. It's the ninth largest economy in the world by its own self, 
Um, but I do believe Texas has 30, 16 million people per UPS, FedEx, and the United States Postal Service, 16 million people relocated from one state to another. 85% of that 16 million migration from one state to another left a blue state, moved to a red state. California is losing population. New York is losing population. New Jersey losing population. The Carolinas are gaining population. Florida is gaining population. Texas is growing in population. Believe it or not, Montana and Wyoming are growing in population. There is a tectonic shift in America today, but this is not I mean, this is not a, a, a in-the-moment sort of um, transition. This is a generational shift. And I think, you know, we'll be rewarded when they start doing censuses in 2030 and 2040 and reallocating electoral votes. I, I know my kids will live long enough to see Texas have the same number of electoral votes. And there's enough data now that shows they aren't turning the red states bluer, but rather redder. So there will be an electoral college advantage for the Republican uh, as we move forward. Enjoy your day. We'll continue tomorrow.